So, Sharkbait, what do you think? Let's do it. Hello, I am Daryl. And I'm Petros. And welcome to episode 9 of Getting Defoe You. From Heaven's Gate to the present day, join us as we get to know Willem Defoe in this dedicated Defoe podcast. So, we're nearly there. We're nearly done with season 1. It's the penultimate episode of the first season and what a way to bring in episode nine with i think what is fair to say a certified banger oh yes i I think many a people of a certain age will be well this will be this will be a big film for them and it's as we get into in the episode it's a film that is ever changing depending on what time of life you watch it at as 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 we get into our with our fantastic guest David Trumbull, who I'm, I'm sure you'll agree, Dale, pretty much schools us on all things animation in this episode. And we're not talking about the school of fish. <laughs> Gives us a, you know a very beautiful insight, a very educational conversation about how this film is put together, sort of the nature of uh, information. I, for one, as a self-proclaimed dum-dum in many aspects of life, came away much wiser, much smarter for being witness to Mr. Trumbull's infinite knowledge in all things animation. So it was an absolute privilege and a pleasure to um, have him with us in this one as well. But like you said, this is a film that changes over time. It's a film that, you know, 20 years later, we're still talking about. It's still... I think, you know, we don't want to get into our spoilers too early, but I think it's a film that still absolutely holds up. 100%. It's, uh, and we get into it, that aspect of who you relate to in the film. Me and me and David coming to it as, like, parental figures, and uh, and, and Daryl still very much uh, <laughs> holding, on to, holding on to his... His, his small fin feeling like a, a Nemo lost in the world. <laughs> and I hear touching those butts, baby. That will make context. Do not cancel me. It will make context. If you've seen the film and if you listen to the episode as well, I'm not a creep. <laughs> but quickly moving on from my cancelable comments, Petros, obviously, when people aren't exploring the depths of the ocean, looking for a certain address in Australia, uh, where can our dear listeners go to find us on the uh, the socials and all good such things. Yeah, when we're not kind of cooped up in a fish tank in, in a dentist's office, you can find us online, baby. If you're not online, where are you? You're at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DefoeUPod, or you can drop us an email at DefoeUPod at gmail.com. Calm. Delightful stuff. So you've got your thoughts to share about Finding Nemo. We're the people that want to hear them. Get in touch on all the usual socials as well. But with that said, we've got a belter of an episode, a lot of ground to cover, and it's going to be a very educational one. You're going to enjoy this one as much as we did recording it. So I think without further ado, let's just get right into it. It's episode nine, Finding Nemo, and we... We'll find you again on the other side. Catch you soon. Don't. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. 
Getting to like you by watching all your films. So, this week we turn our attentions to the animated comedy drama adventure from 2003, Finding Nemo, as we get to know Defoe in the confines of a dentist's fish tank as he voices Gil, a Moorish idol fish and leader of the tank gang, who happen upon a lost young clownfish. Now joining us this week to get to know Willem Dafoe a little better and see if this film is a film worth finding or better lost to the ocean floor is award-winning cartoonist, artist, illustrator, an all-round good egg. It's David Trumbull. David, thank you very, very much for joining. How the devil are you doing today? Hi, guys. I'm all the better for seeing you. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to be reunited with my, my podcast therapy session. Uh, <laughs> my, <partner>. my, <laughs> my, my, <laughs> my group therapy session partner, Petros. And also to meet you, Daryl. What a pleasure. Well, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get group therapy right up in here when we're talking about uh, some daddy issues. <laughs> oh, my God. I can only imagine what's coming. It's going to be glorious. I've been waiting to share this for so long, but incredible to have us all here on the dryness of land talking about the wetness of the ocean floor and beyond. So obviously we're here to talk about Disney Pixar's Finding Nemo this week, which is very exciting. But as ever, before we just jump into it, David Raw is interested to know, as we get to know Defoe, how well you know Defoe as well. So with your history of Defoe, are you sort of a fan of Defoe? Do you recall what your first Defoe film was as well? I would definitely count myself as a friend of Defoe. I think the thing about that actor is that I feel like I know him, yet I also feel like I barely scratched the surface with him. So he's like an actor that is so prolific that... Um, I was like doing a little like brushing up of his IMDb page before this podcast. And I was like, oh shit, he was in that film. And he was in that film. Like I realized that I've seen him in films that I've forgotten that I saw him in. So I realized that like the first film I ever saw Willem Dafoe in was The English Patient. And mm. and he's absolutely brilliant in that. It was the first time I'd seen a lot of those actors, actually. But then, like, a year later, he was in Speed 2 as the villain. Oh. Like, obviously, chewing the scenery like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> but, like, I, I can remember vividly being impacted by both of those performances, yet never connecting that they were the same person. So Defoe, like, rocks up in the most unexpected of places. Like, he's in, like, one scene of The Aviator. Like, you know, and obviously, you know, like, you end up going to film school. Eventually, someone slides the boondock sates over the table, kind of like, <laughs> like a dirty <laughs> drug or something. Like, like yeah, you just get, get this in your system. And, like, he's, like, one of the most enduringly sort of, like, charming parts of what is otherwise kind of like a, a really, really mixed film. And I actually remember him very vividly from the documentary that came out of the making of that movie, uh, the documentary Overnight, which is all about how the director of the Boondock Saints was such an arsehole that he basically tanked his own career after yeah. one movie by just getting on the wrong side of Harvey Weinstein. And there's actually like a, a, a moment I, I just distinctly remember both from the trailer and the documentary, which is Willem Dafoe on set talking to the director and the director's like mouthing off about Harvey Weinstein and about how he's better than everyone. And Willem Dafoe just in like a laugh just says, keep your mouth 
shut. <laughs> he's so prophetic as to what happens to him because obviously he's he's managed to survive in this industry as like a, a real nice guy. But it's just like that. That's the thing I remember the most from from that documentary and actually the Boondock Saints. It's just him urging this guy not to destroy his own career. <laughs> so yeah, he he looms large in my imagination. It's kind of incredible to think that he's had the career that he's had, considering he's had all these spikes of awareness. Like, obviously, he's very similar to Nicolas Cage. Obviously, Cage is the is the actor who brought you guys together, you know? Yeah, and man. they have kind of, on the face of it, seemingly similar careers in that they both are very prolific. They've both been in lots of diverse types of things. And they also both are very, like, GIF-worthy. They, 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 they're the, yeah. <laughs> the creators of memes the world over. And what's funny about it is that, like, whereas you would compare them, like, Cage is someone who's kind of like a crazy, goofy actor who people forget can be a, a, an amazing dramatic actor. So, like, you know, he'll show up in, in Pig and suddenly, you know, blow your brain out and w- with his subtlety. But people just think that he's the goofy, wild-eyed Cage. Whereas Willem Dafoe, you know, he started off in things like Platoon and, and other mm. movies where, like, he, he, d- deadly serious movies. Yet he also is blessed with, like, a Jim Carrey elastic face that sort of like makes you feel like he should have started off in broad comedy. And then like broad comedy is where he sort of ended up going after a a role like Norman Osborn, where, you know, uh, he's, he's being directed by Sam Raimi. And so suddenly like he, he, uh, basically any shot of that character from that film has been turned into a GIF. He's just uh, like every single little tiny, beautiful thing he does with his face is so articulate and so pushed and big um, that then obviously then he starts showing up in, every Wes Anderson movie and 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 people start tracking down like some of his crazier more out there performances and things like like uh Wild at Heart and stuff like that like he's wow. he's really a treasure trove of amazing faces I was on the podcast is Paul Dano okay which obviously I know you guys are contemporaries and we were commenting about how like the thing that makes a great character actor is like having a distinctive face that's unlike any other and I think yeah. I I think I may have even I, I'm ashamed to say I may have even compared Paul Dano to like a a, 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 a human Tintin, like a, a lifelike <laughs> Tintin face, like very perfectly round. <laughs> um, uh, looks like he was drawn by Herge. And I was thinking about Defoe and I was like, it's crazy that he's done so many dramatic roles because as a, speaking as, a, as someone who works in animation, like he, he basically looks like a lifelike Aardman character. You know, he looks like he looks like yeah. the reverend, different hair, but he looks like the reverend from Curse of the Were-Rabbit. He's got these kind of crazy <laughs> eyes, these really circular goofball eyes, but also like a mouth that kind of fits that kind of odd man bean mouth aesthetic, you know? He's very European looking, isn't he? For like a kind of out and out like midwesterner he looks he looks very germanic he definitely like, he looks- does he definitely does it's almost like when he was in what is it the the, the film where he plays oh shadow of the vampire where he plays like a nosferatu type you like he's the kind of actor mm-hmm. you feel like doesn't require makeup you know like to look kind of like like he's been in a coffin for th- hundreds of years in in transylvania and it's like you know obviously famously when they did spider-man like originally norman osborne was going to turn into the green goblin and have a full prosthetic makeup 
green face that looked incredible, like looked like incredible makeup and stuff. But they realized that it wasn't necessary because, you know, Willem Dafoe's face is basically a medical marvel. <laughs> <laughs> so I love him. I love him. I think he's an absolute gift of, a, of an actor. And he is the probably the epitome of the expression like that there are no small parts. You know, he shows up really uh, beautifully as like very dependable character actor in so many things that we love. So yeah, absolutely love. Do you remember the first film that kind of you were like, I want to see more of this guy? Because obviously you mentioned films where you were like, he he just, you had to go into your kind of memory bank. But oh yeah, he is in that. Do you know... (laughs) It's funny It's funny that you ask this. I don't know what this says about me, but the movie that I saw in which I felt like, yeah, I'd love to see more of him was a movie where I maybe saw too much of him, which was Antichrist. Oh, uh, the Lars von Trier movie, obviously, like, you, he basically bears all in a lot of ways in that movie. And, you know, obviously uh, with Lars von Trier, you can never tell exactly how much you're seeing as the actor, but he, he, he and uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg really bear their souls and their bodies for that film. And I'm not really a big Lars von Trier fan, to be honest. I mean, Antichrist is a very disturbing watch. And I think just for some for some reason, his performance, those two lead performances captured me in a way that other Lars von Trier films have not. And his 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 first, like, I guess his second scene after the black and white opening where they lose their child of like him following the coffin, he's just mm. in absolute agony. Like he's just crying. It's almost a soundless shot of them at the funeral. And really it's the only shot you need at the funeral. It's like a one, it's it, it's like a one and done scene. Like a, just, just a one going behind this coffin with him basically in tears and his entire body is heaving. And you just find yourself feeling like, holy shit, this guy is more than just Norman Osborn. He's more than just a quirky Wes Anderson character who shows up in a funny hat and speaks with a funny voice and and, and yeah. is there for an epic whip pan when you need a, a, a nice laugh. Like, he, this guy is a fucking actor. And I actually remember we went to a masterclass, myself and Greg Locke, a friend of mine, we went to a mass class of Patrick Stewart around the time Antichrist came out. And Patrick Stewart was there saying, holy shit, best film I've watched this year was Antichrist because the, Jeez. you said, the, the, the performances those two people give, that is acting. And like, I, I, I was inclined to agree. It's, a, it's an incredible performance. And it made me feel like, okay, I better take note of this guy. This guy is the real deal. If the rumours of Willem Dafoe having, uh, apparently they had to use a stunt cock in that film because his was confusingly large, I believe (laughs) Lars von Trier said. Best actor He's a top contender Doing yoga so he's always trim and slender We must remember Always remember Willow, 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 Willem's member Dafoe's dead Juicy we're gonna chat about it for a little, little bit. Defoe's dick, don't go near. Confusingly long said by Lars von Trier. The fact he can act as a man with a regular sized cock is <laughs> acting, baby. If, if I do. Probably the biggest stretch of his career. <laughs> <laughs> no, no pun intended. I did find myself saying to you when you first told me that you were doing this podcast, I was like, well, it does make sense because he does have a CV as long as his dick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he certainly has that grounded calm and sweetness that comes from someone who knows that he's got like a full on 12 inch. Yeah. He's got, he's, he, he is literally the living embodiment of big dick energy Mm. big defoe energy baby he doesn't have to prove it he's got nothing to prove (laughs) and he goes to show as well i just think in his general 
You watch him in interviews as well, then he just seems like just the most grounded, humble character mm. that you can sort of find as well, which is like from from deface to down to his de toes, <laughs> this guy's got acting in his in his blood, in his veins, in his hog, apparently. Which, <laughs> which I, I suspect the hog will be something that is brought up. On a, on a semi-frequently ba- basis. It probably should have its own IMDb page at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it will be once we're done. It will have its own Wikipedia. It will be in blue by the time we're finished with it. You are absolutely right, by the way, Daryl, that the best things about him is that he has had an incredibly long career, but there doesn't appear to be any kind of problematic stories about him like everyone who works with him loves him he just seems like an incredibly like you said grounded person and that's very refreshing in this day and age where where we you know we start seeing some of his contemporaries and some of the people he's been in a lot of films with you know like don't necessarily uh, survive that that lens that we now have in popular culture he's he's definitely one of those people who seems like well adjusted um probably allows him to to play so many freaks you know because he's he's actually not he's actually someone you'd really love to hang out with maybe read a book <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess it's that thing they say about horror filmmakers, right? It's like they're the most adjusted people because they get all of their shit out in their creativity, mm. whereas like the people who are making like, do you know what I mean real straight lace stuff all the time? It's like you're the ones that, do you know what I mean you're the ones who are hiding something? Do you know what I mean you're playing all these prim and proper people, Army Hammer? Like you're <laughs> the one who's got something to hide. I mean, we, we name names on this podcast. We name names. Yeah, well, I mean, sure. like, I mean, it, it it is funny when you see things like obviously the, the the big circus going on around Jonathan Majors right now, which is like you know it was it was just last year that everyone was putting him on a pedestal of being like a symbol of allyship and like refined masculinity. You know what I mean? Just because he mm. he did a few GQ covers, like you know, dressed in 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 in, in pink and things, and people were like, oh, okay, this is a real man. And it's like you know, toxic masculinity. <laughs> It does not uh, discriminate. The toxic masculinity can affect anyone. In fact, it, it is especially powerful with people who get told yes and told you're brilliant all the time. And so Defoe, you know, just just seems like the kind of person who doesn't buy into that culture. And, you know, I, I, I personally feel, just to get on my soapbox for a second, like I don't really feel like we have to stand anyone in this in this you know, media landscape. I think it's, it's, a, it's a fool's errand because you end up basically asking people to lie to you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and when you make mm-hmm. that part of your personality that, 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 that you love this person, person and then when they turn out to be a human being as they all are then it it can really rock your world and you know i really really appreciate that my job in animation is like a job where where you get to work with people but we don't get to be famous you know like you can be uh, admired in your industry and yet you're not like part of that circus that seems to be like you know what is it that they say that hollywood is a banquet but the the last dish is you (laughs) and uh defoe has been going back for seconds forever and it's because he's he's managed to make himself you know, he's basically created a lifestyle where it's all about the work, and that's what it should be. Yes, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I, I think, again, to echo the cage sentiment, he's one of those people who just does not believe he's above the medium, which is always nice. And yeah, that's exactly as you said, David, it's very easy to start of, again, in today's culture, idolize these celebrities, put them on pedestals. And when they humanize themselves with an error, nothing worse than finding out people you like are absolute rotters, but. Again, it's just lovely that you just have, you know, these figures who, you know, I think we, me and Petra said this, Defoe seems like a man who feasibly we could maybe get on this podcast one day. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, and then we can just be like, we'll, we'll give you a very small pedestal, sir, the humblest, tiniest 
Do you know what? I think we can give him the benefit of the doubt. That's what I think I feel comfortable with. Like yes, he, definitely. He, he's had good innings and he's been around long enough that if there were some horrible nightmare stories about him, I feel like I would have heard about it by now. But one, mm. 100%, 100%. And I think, I think obviously you're, <laughs> you're, you're getting on your soapbox. Could have very much just kind of instilled some doubt in mine and Daryl's hearts and this podcast could be absolutely incendiary <laughs> before it's even yeah, launched. Don't let us down, Willem, don't let us down. <laughs> it's gonna, there's going to be two, like you say that the, the, the format of this show is at the end it's like a defriend or a defoe. Like at some point you might end up having to create the third option, which is the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it will take a hard pivot into like getting defoe you, the title will stick, but it'll be like an town style series <laughs> of like you'll just have to retitle like, it and get the fuck out of here or something <laughs> yeah this we'll be, podcast will drop off the grid so quick i would just become a we're just become an investigative journalism podcast uh, getting to getting getting to the root of what happened do you know what guys your story is so funny because you guys are two cage addicts who finally hit the end of your supply and you've moved on to a different drug in another prolific actor with yeah. crazy performances but if like if that sad day ever comes i don't believe it will but if it does then i'm sure that cage will be there at the stage door with open arms ready to take you into another <laughs> crazy uh, fever dream you know what i mean like you'll always have yeah. cage <laughs> That'll be when I deploy the option to see a Sean Bean podcast called Sean Bean There Done That, and I review every fucking episode of Sharp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the ultimate parachute pull for me, just whoomph out Bean. But with that said, hopefully we don't have to pull any parachutes, especially not in season one. Heaven's gate forbid. But Finding Nemo, and I believe Petros, you know, we will get into the old synopsis in just a moment but i believe that you have some facts and figures for us today oh do i have the facts and the figures right here for you so this film was released may 30th 2003 on a budget 93 million dollars with a box office return of nine hundred and thirty-six million ninety-four thousand eight hundred and fifty-two dollars, making it the second highest-grossing film of two thousand and three, the sixty-fourth highest-grossing film of all time, just losing out behind Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But more than Minions: The Rise of Gru, this film won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. It currently holds an eight point two on IMDb a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 296 reviews, an audience score of 86% with a critic census of breathtakingly lovely and grounded by stellar efforts of a well-chosen cast. Finding Nemo adds another beautifully crafted gem to the Pixar crown. Willem Dafoe sighting in this film. We go a whole 29 minutes and 44 seconds before we get the lovely Gil on screen. And his first line in the movie is, Nobody touch him. <laughs> oh, oh, I love the defects. I love the defigures. I love information. That was a great rendition, mate. <laughs> I felt like I was there. We're slowly trying to work on our Defoe impressions. It goes to us like, no one's doing, no one's doing a good Defoe out there or any Defoe. You know, we reference Cage. I think we've mm. all got a Cage in us somewhere. Yeah. 
I think the extent of my Defoe at the moment is obviously we're in this Defoe rabbit hole and we're watching so many interviews, reading articles, listening to podcasts. The only thing I've noted about him at the moment is that if he really enjoys a movie, he will say, it was a beautiful movie. That's, that's, that's my Defoe. That's about as much as I've got at the moment. Absolutely. You're right. He is kind of like a hard voice to pin down. I think it's because so much of Defoe's appeal is in his appearance, in his face, what he can do when he articulates his features. And I was, having just rewatched the movie again, I was actually so delighted to re-experience that performance because I realized that like Defoe gets typecast as a lot of villains because he's a, bit, a little mm. bit sinister looking. Yet when he's untethered to his appearance for Finding Nemo, obviously he's playing a character that's a little darker in the form of Gil, but it's a testament to his performance that why he's perfect for it because he, he simultaneously can sound sinister. He's got a bit of gravel to his voice, but mm. he also has a great deal of warmth. Like he's actually a really, really good choice for that character because Gil kind of straddles the divide between being kind of like slightly nefarious and yet still lovable and redeemable. So it's like, I realized that like actually his voice, when you listen to him in interviews, like you said, he does sound like a cute like uh, uncle or a cute grandpa or something when he's talking in mm-hmm. interviews. He sounds yeah. like a really sweet dude. He's, he's a sweet fish in this as well, I mm-hmm. think by all accounts. He's a well, Dale, can you tell us what is Finding Nemo all about? Well, I'll be thrilled to tell you. Thank you for asking, Petros. With a, it, it's almost as if we planned a, a format for this. So Finding Nemo, we cast ourselves to the Great Barrier Reef where a, a timid, overprotective father clownfish called Marlin sets out on a journey to rescue his young clownfish son, the titular Nemo, after he is captured by divers. A journey that takes him across the Great Barrier Reef all the way to Sydney, meeting a whole host of fishy characters along the way i think we, we, we pass it to you david especially with an animated movie like this because i think i don't think it's it's too much of a sweeping statement to say i feel like most people in the world have seen a pixar movie yeah of that's some a pretty safe assumption yeah <laughs> um, i think i think it's a very safe gamble on that one in terms of finding nemo when was it for you when do you recall sort of the first time you saw this film and, you know, what your impressions were in the first viewing as well? I do, yeah, yeah, vividly. So, yeah, so just a, a little bit of background. I, for the last seven years, have been working as a storyboard artist and story supervisor in animated features, most recently working at Netflix Animation. And, you know, obviously a massive reason why I wanted to become an animator was due to seeing Toy Story when I was about eight years old. And then mm. obviously being a massive devotee of everything Pixar all through, you know, my teenage years and, and through university. And, you know, Finding Nemo, I was I was so grateful that Petros called me up for this one because it truly is. And I, I watched it again just the other day. It truly is probably still my favorite Pixar movie. Obviously, the Toy Story movies are pretty untouchable. Like, it's one of the best trilogies ever made, uh, not just in animation, but just in general. But, like, you've got to think about the fact that, like, okay, Pixar at the time, let's say 2003, it's only Pixar's fifth feature. And this was during, like, it's kind of hard to remember that time before, like, everything in the world was CG animated. Like the the actual medium of CG animation had started with Toy Story pretty much, changed the whole face of the business. And like, so so this was only Pixar's fifth feature. It was the first Pixar feature to win the animated feature Oscar because Shrek had won it the year before over Monsters, Inc. And so this was during Pixar's 
insane run that they had from Toy Story all the way through to The Incredibles, which came after Finding Nemo. And then Laster, who had started it all, kind of breaks the streak with Cars, which is like, you know, it's still a, a, a decent movie, but it's not considered to be a classic in the Pixar pantheon. So like the, those first six movies are like just nothing but bangers. And so I was already well and truly in the bag for Pixar when I went to the cinema to see Finding Nemo. And I can recall, actually, the teaser for Finding Nemo being on the DVD of Monsters, Inc. So Monsters, Inc. had come out, made a ton of money. Every Pixar movie was making a bigger smash and becoming a bigger hit than the last one. It was just like they they couldn't go anywhere but up. And so by the time I saw the the teaser trailer for Finding Nemo, which was just like a little skit between Albert Brooks's Marlin and Ellen DeGeneres' Dory, like there was just a little bit of them being funny together. Like he was being cantagorous and she was being dopey and oblivious. And I can remember my heart kind of sinking because I was like, okay, it looks kind of cool. It's about fish. That's kind of interesting. But also I was a bit tired at that point of like the buddy movie format that Pixar had been trotting out every time. Obviously Mike and and, and Sully uh, were kind of like the Monsters, Inc. version of Woody and Buzz. And I was like, is this just going to be another buddy movie, quest movie like Toy Story? Again, is that the only kind of movie that, that, that Pixar know how to make? And I just did not know what I was getting myself in for because I thought it was going to be good. But I did not realize that it would be the, the Pixar movie that hit me the most emotionally. Um, mm-hmm. Because on top of that, obviously, you know, they do buddy comedy very well. But on top of that very easy buddy comedy format and formula was this father-son story that was deeply, deeply emotional to me. And like, there are a bunch of aspects to that movie, Andrew Stanton's direction, the score, and just a lot of the decisions that they made that made it like, it just blew me away. And so even though I've, there have been other incredible Pixar movies since, obviously they have another great run later on with Up and Inside Out and Coco and all these things. I don't think it's ever beaten for me the emotional high that Finding Nemo did. So watching it again in preparation for this podcast was actually a wonderful experience because I, like a lot of people in this industry and a lot of people in the audience, have kind of started to take Pixar a bit for granted recently. You know, like there are so many other animation studios out there right now. Streaming wars have changed the way animation comes out. And Pixar, whilst still continuing to make, you know, objectively well-made films, has actually started to become considered as being more of a formula. Like people are are more wise Mm. to the, the tricks of their trade and their house style. You know, now we have movies like Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse that me and Petros talked about before and, and a lot of other like house styles coming out, like Netflix animation really pushing the boat out to try to make as many different types of things as possible. And Pixar, while still being very good at what it does, kind of like entered a, a period after Last to Left where there's been like a strange not like backlash, but just like a, a it's it's been it's been hard online to see people get excited about Pixar movies, which is so weird. It's, it's kind of bizarre. And, and so I, I'm actually really grateful that you guys asked me to do this because Finding Nemo is my favorite Pixar and I haven't watched it in a long, 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 long time because I used to watch it religiously. I almost watched it as like training, like a Rocky Balboa training montage when I was first trying to get into animation. <laughs> I was just like, I'm going to be a storyboard artist, so I'm just going to watch Pixar movies all the time and study what all the shots are, study what the, the decisions they make. And so Finding Nemo, it had one of the best DVD box sets ever. It had incredible extras, incredible deleted scenes and commentaries. It was actually one of the most highest selling DVDs at the time ever because of how wonderful it was on a par with like the Lord of the Rings box sets back when they were like like (laughs) so good. And like the filmmakers opened up so much of the process that I learned an awful lot about how animated movies were made back then before I even started trying to get into the industry. So I had this massive period where I knew every shot and every line in this movie. And then... 
obviously, you know, the guild went off the lily after a while. You know, John Lester left Pixar speaking about, you know, getting on the soapbox about like, we, we shouldn't stand people. Like, you know, when I was first getting into animation, I thought the one thing that I had in my bucket list of ambitions was that I was going to get a hug from John Lester. <laughs> and now it's like a one thing no one wants. <laughs> in fact, I think, he's con- I think he's contractually legally obligated not to hug anybody in his contracts now. <laughs> so, so um, I, that, that new news about like the, 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 the sort of shock moment in, during the Me Too movement where Lester left because of misdeeds, essentially, just like mm. creating a toxic environment for, for female employees. That rocked me because I was in my first animation feature job at the time. I remember calling my head of story and just talking to him about it because I was like, you know, he's the reason I got into this business, you know? And so there was like a moment where I sort of like, it's not like I went off Pixar, but it, I, I sort of had the rose tinted spectacles taken off of like, okay, so the DVD extras make it seem like it's this big grand dream factory. Like everyone's quirky and ride on scooters. And it's like a, like, it's like everyone looks like the coolest person in the world and you'd love to hang out with them and make movies with them. But then, you know, th- these stories come out and you see them go through this big necessary cultural sea change. And you're like, okay, I guess that it's, it is also just a business. And as a, as a workplace, it is subject to the same systemic issues as any other workplace. Mm. So I kind of saw it uh, more as a real place. And, you know, I'm very lucky to work with the collaborators I've worked with. And I've worked with a few people who have been involved with Pixar productions. And I've met a few people who I, I got a tour of Pixar a couple of years ago by the guy who got me my first job and his wife. And so my relationship to Pixar became more complex after mm-hmm. I got after I got into animation, so rewatching this movie was was actually a very sweet and affirming moment because it was like I got to re-experience something that I had taken now kind of for granted myself. There's something I wanted to pick up on you said, David, about like the, I guess, Pixar going off the boil. Do you think some of that is the way that like Disney itself is treating the brand? Obviously, like multiple of their recent releases have gone straight to disney plus Mm. like with uh luca and soul and then the fact that obviously the house style of disney itself has kind of morphed into a more pixar Mm. looking do you know what i mean like style so there is this kind of that that divide between the house style and what is disney what is disney pixar seems to have eroded slightly right well, it's funny. So, like, that's a very complicated question. I think it's a yeah. mixture of a bunch of different forces. And I'm obviously speaking just from my vantage point as a story artist in this business. I'm not privy to big conversations about metrics or any of those things. But I think that it's kind of funny that the three movies that were direct to Disney+, Plus, I believe, was Soul, Luca, and Turning Red. I would rank Turning Red by Domi Shi as the movie that got me back into being interested in Pixar again after a long period of feeling a little disillusioned with the formula. And so I don't think it was necessarily that they were no longer being theatrically released because the Pixar movie that then was theatrically released, Lightyear, you know, came and went without much fanfare and was actually quite considered a commercial failure. So I think it had a lot to do with the fact that there was a big turning point halfway through Pixar's tenure, which is that Lasseter and Ed Catmull became the creative heads of Disney and Pixar at the same time. So not only do you have a mixture of that culture of storytelling and the brain trust sort of like formula of of refining stories that they had had perfected in the sort of incubation chamber that was Pixar and then moved over to Disney. Suddenly you got a lot of Disney movies that were very successful, but that also played with the same formula as Pixar. And so I think it became a case of not only did Pixar's formula 
popular become more recognizable, but it also became more recognizable across the whole industry because mm-hmm. Disney movies and Pixar movies now have some of the same cornerstones, I guess. You could say that Frozen was a Pixar movie and I'd probably go, yeah, okay. Yeah, it, it, Do you know what I mean? As opposed to a Disney movie. Like, yeah. you could tell me that and I'd be like, yeah, okay. It makes sense, yeah. Because Disney often gets a lot of flack for not doing a lot of villains anymore. And I think it's because, you know, mm. in, in Pixar movies, while there are some great villains, like a lot of the time, if you were to analyze the majority of Pixar movies... In kind of like a strange way, the villain of most Pixar movies is the main character for the first two thirds of the film. They are their own enemy. They're, yeah. the, the thing that needs to change is their is 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 the way they see the world or what they think their goal is. So Woody is actually the villain of Toy Story for the first two acts. Like he's trying to get rid of Buzz. He's deeply jealous, and he has yeah. to learn to live and let live and share his child that he feels like a parent uh, with another parent. Basically, it's like the stepdad comes in, the new hotshot <laughs> guy who's taking your kid away, and you're like, "Fuck you! I'm his dad." You know, that's that's yeah. Toy Story, but it means Woody has to go on that journey. And it's the same with Finding Nemo, which is that, you know, Marlin by Albert Brooks is a father who's so deeply afraid of anything bad happening to his son, so overprotective that he drives his son out to touch the boat, to touch the butt, if you will, because he's too stifling. And so mm-hmm. he is the reason that Nemo goes missing. So he's technically the villain of Finding Nemo for the first two acts until he becomes a better father who can allow his son to be out and have an adventure and to, and, and to live his life. So with that, like... In that golden run, as I was mentioning, that formula was so new and refreshing in animation that every time a Pixar movie came out, we were just like, another masterpiece, cut, print. That's just another one for the classic archive, you know? And now that we've been through over like 20 20 Pixar movies, you know, it's like the audience is very smart. They're smarter than they think they are. And I think the audience just got wise to that formula. So now we have to work harder to offset expectations. Back when these first few Pixar movies were being made, it really was going against expectations. People were looking for villains. Willem Dafoe's character, Gil, seems like a villain, but he actually isn't. There actually isn't a villain. The villain mm. is Marlin's fear. The villain is, is, is Marlin's attempts to control his son too much out of fear. And so nowadays, I mean, I, myself and Dana, my partner, we, we would go to see these Pixar movies starting from something like Onward Onwards. <laughs> but um, Onward Onwards, we would look at it and we would go, okay, so now that we've seen so many Pixar movies, it's like, I don't even want to know what's going to happen. Like I actively want to be surprised, but I can't help my brain now reverse engineering how it's going to end. So I would be like, okay, sure. well, I... Pixar thinks, because of the way note sessions work, the way the brain trusts work, they kind of have gotten so good at this formula that they can't help themselves now. So it's like, okay, so Onward begins with these brothers and the boy just wants to see his dad again. And so now that I know what his absolute want is, they've hammered his want uh, into me over the head with a hammer for the first 15 minutes of that movie. I'm like, okay... Even though I don't want to know, I now know how this movie is going to end. It's going to end with him giving his brother the chance to say goodbye to their dad because that's the opposite of what he wants. Whatever the character wants at the beginning is going to be the opposite of what they need by the end. And so unfortunately, it's like I, it's, it's like when you play Wordle too often and suddenly Wordle is no longer difficult anymore. It's like, oh God, it's like I, I've ruined it for myself. I actually know where <laughs> it's going to go. And actually, that's why I love Domishi's Turning Red because it was the first Pixar movie in a long time. It was like a shot in the arm of a dress of like, actually, I kind of know where these characters have to go. Obviously, you know, May has to come to terms and reach an understanding with her mother, but I have no fucking clue how it's going to happen because this plot is so crazy and off the rails and and full of quirky things that I've not seen in another Pixar movie. And by the time you get to like the kaiju third act ending, I'm like, I have no idea how this is going to resolve itself, but I'm having (laughs) a great time. So yeah, Pixar's biggest problem was just that 
that it did what it did so well that it was no longer experimental anymore. It was no longer revolutionary. And so I'm very excited to see what Pixar now does now that they have broadened out their brain trust and brought in more voices and people from different perspectives and walks of life, because that is going to be a net benefit for the audience. 100%. And it's like I say, not all of that, you know, Pixar also almost being their own worst enemy, their own main character in their own film, suffering from their own success. And you so, so like eloquently like describing that. I was thinking in my brain as well, as you were saying, well, often the main characters are their own worst enemies. And mm. I was thinking, oh my God, yes, they are. <laughs> so my, my Pixar brain is just blown. I'm sorry, I've ruined <laughs> Pixar for you. <laughs> blown. I was like, obviously this is an audio format. You can't see my hands are just trembling going, Woody. No. <laughs> no, we were rooting for you. you. We were all rooting for you. <laughs> <laughs> My sort of only takeaway with Woody is that I will never fancy dresses him as, again as being a man of strawberry blonde, pale affliction. I once did a fancy dress as Woody and a security guard went to me, you the milky bell kid, uh, ruined, <laughs> absolutely ruined me. You don't come back from that. <laughs> but I think, you know, as we're touching on like Pixar, I think for a lot of people, just so special, I think Toy Story being my first Pixar and the one I hold sort of nearest and dearest, even though it's it's a very specific reference, but even though this was a time when Pixar couldn't get animals' eyes right and that dog, mm. that dog looked horrendous to this day. He looks like, a, you know, a 16-bit nightmare. <laughs> Forget about humans, yeah. <laughs> Forget about humans and their big old puffy faces. It's all about... Uh, <laughs> and the big butts. And those big butts. It's all about those dog eyes. This came out in 2003. So I think I saw this at the cinema and I, I, I re-watched this just the other day. I was watching it with my partner as well. And then just seeing how a lot of the animation just still really, really holds up it by absolutely standards does. as well. Like the, the opening scene where it's Marlin and his fish wife in the anemone, anemone and, and, in the thing um and it's just it's weird because like i've seen water in real life you know i have a tap at home i can see water whenever mm. i want but then you see it on the screen it's like god damn that looks that looks great and then, yeah i think it's one of those things as you get older you appreciate it more because probably the first time i watched it i was i don't know 11 12 yeah. and i was like Fish are great but now <laughs> fish are like, friends not food <laughs> fish are friends not food but now you watch it and I think with being older and wiser, it comes with a great appreciation for the effort that goes into making oh, this as absolutely. well. I love the there's a little little tidbit that Andrew Staten and Lee Unkrich were sharing that they gave the animators some like real life footage of either the sea under it mm. or above water. And they said, can you just as best as you can replicate this? Mm. And they went away and like did it basically one for one. And then they said, okay, we're going to have to pull back from this. Yeah, you have to, to make it more push. Some... <laughs> yeah, we need to find kind of like a more animated style because it's like people have been underwater and they, they use this brilliant term of saying like, we want it to look like what you imagine and like kind of what you think it looks like underwater as opposed to what it actually does look like underwater because they yeah. said like super i think if you go super realistic you get like the footage we're seeing for the little mermaid right where it's like yeah oh, we've got photorealistic yeah. fish 
And yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah and I'm sure I'm sure uh, later on in this podcast we'll be talking about Aquaman at some point, uh, yeah. the undersea stuff there. So, like, <laughs> one thing's for sure, I would absolutely never, ever, ever want them to announce a live action Finding Nemo. That would be <sighs> the most counterintuitive thing to do at all. And I'm so glad oh, you gosh. mentioned the look of the film. It absolutely holds up more so than other Pixar movies at that time. Actually, the movie that comes out after this movie, which is Brad Bird's The Incredibles, obviously that's a movie where the majority of characters in that are human and so that movie does not age as well as finding nemo does something about it being under the water the fact that it's the fish and it's like if you compare the incredibles to the incredibles 2 it's like a quantum leap between the way the humans look in that first film and then what they look like like a decade later whereas when finding dory the other sequel you know to this movie came out many years later it's a real testament to finding nemo that finding dory doesn't really add much in terms of obviously the incredibly different improved graphics and stuff like that but you really don't notice it like I, I think the original Finding Nemo still remains probably my favorite uh, visually stunning like aesthetic Pixar movie I think it's just the you know whereas Pixar is excellent at world building I think there's just something incredibly magical about that endless blue of the ocean I think it's mm -hmm. so it's so minimalist at the same time as it's incredibly specific and you can just get lost in it. And so, like, whereas I've seen other Pixar movies that are like, okay, we've got to go on a quest. We've got to get here. We, the, the good dinosaur, we go down the stream. We've got to get back to the Three Peaks or whatever. In Finding Nemo, they've got to go on a quest. But because they're just in this endless void of blue with all this murky, yeah. like, rays of light coming through the, the, the surface of the water and, and just all of those incredible, like, swaying, the anemones and the reeds and the reef and stuff, it just feels endless and epic in a way that just, like, it just feels like a larger world. And it's just because it's, you know, just shaking hands with the real world. I think this is the perfect middle point between like photorealism and then mm. a shark's tail. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. is kind of like yeah. bubblegum popcorn, like just kind of really garish bright colours and kind of is full, fully kind of like <laughs> sillily animated. Whereas this, like you think of shots like when they're trying to speak to the whale and it's like, yeah. It is murky in the distance and it is that kind of mm. what you would imagine sticking a camera underwater, but they've kind of put it through this kind of Pixar filter almost to kind of really like bring it that 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 really diminishes what what the the team of animators are doing by kind of just to <laughs> well, just like, to kind of even things like the jellyfish forest you know the visuals of that like the the sort of yeah. the blurred almost like uh sort of like translucence of that incredible like sort of diaphanous sort of like forest of life forms and then you know going down into the depths with that that sort of underwater like uh fish with the with the light on top of its head like the visuals of the movie is like considering it's taking place under the water where light is such, such a scarce thing it's just incredibly immersive you're right you couldn't tell this story one to one it's it's basically taking everybody's dreams of the ocean and making them feel incredibly real definitely and it it feels like you know, not to sound like this is kind of a trope of the medium, but the the ocean itself, it feels like a character, because as we're saying, like the anemones and like the reeds and the seaweed, it waves and moves. And it's so much of it is very hypnotic just to watch. And I, I think I saw the same documentary that you mentioned about the making of, and it's you know very interesting, very fascinating. And I saw that, you know, to bring up his name again, but John Lasseter mm. made his team get become scuba certified 
as part of the research for this as well. Yeah. I mean, have you ever been asked to like go diving as part of your <laughs> of, of your life? <laughs> no. Um, Pixar has a very interesting culture. So one of the things that they often loud about themselves in all of their DVD extras, they 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 love telling us about this, which is like their proclivity for endless amounts of research, almost an obsessive amount of research for every, everything they do. So if they're making cocoa, then then they go to Mexico. Like they they go and check out the, a Day of the Dead ceremony. They 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 get a bunch of artists. If if we're going to a real Tapui to research up, you know, to, to research Paradise Falls, like they get a bunch of story artists and, and art directors and stuff. And they just literally helicopter them onto a mountain to go and sketch and do incredible like but basically journal in their sketchbooks these incredible things. And it, it does undoubtedly give those movies some feeling of authenticity and of richness and it's beautiful that being said that's not like true of of most animation and i think that has a lot to do with pixar's culture obviously pixar was created by ed catmull john lester and steve jobs and obviously it used to be a hardware company then turned into a film production company but it's it's definitely you know it's in the bay area it is the silicon valley of animation. I mean, I've actually been there a couple of times and it really feels like if you were to compare each animation studio to different sort of legacy colleges in America, like like Ivy League colleges, they're definitely Stanford. In the if you listen to a few podcasts about Stanford, Stanford has an insane surplus of money, like more money than they'll ever be able to spend <laughs> and they spend it on huge amounts of indulgent facilities, amenities and things like that. Like they they hoard money at Stanford. And Pixar is obviously a peerless company they use the best artists and it's like the cream of the crop but at the same time i feel like sometimes pixar is kind of like the stanford of animation in so much as they spend an awful lot of money on their culture on their facilities and there are other studios out there like illumination that make a lot of bank because they actually make their facilities smaller and they have less artists and those artists wear more hats in the production and they can therefore be more agile and more light and and you can end up with a movie that still costs a pretty penny but can make a huge amount of money when it is released whereas i mean i think i've said this on other podcasts before which is that like the good dinosaur made like 40 million dollars but because the good dinosaur costs so much to make over so many years because they were so rigorous in their process they replaced the director halfway through and got pete sewn in and and so it was going for many years just the amount of like overheads on that movie meant that it was not mm. considered a, a box office success even though it made an absolutely gargantuan amount of money and so yeah, Pixar is an incredible place to work, uh, no doubt. And I've worked with a couple of people who have worked there and know people who work there. But it is also, you know, it, it's a bit like Silicon Valley in that it feels a bit like a tech bubble. You know what I mean? Like you said, they believe their own press and they sometimes they can look out at the rest of animation. And there have been some interesting conversations I've had with people. Like I worked with someone who worked on Spider-Verse and, you know, they showed Spider-Verse at Pixar and apparently the people at Pixar were like, how did you make a movie this good? Almost without knowing it, sounding a little bit like up themselves, like, like mm. not in a malicious way, but like they considered themselves like the <laughs> the the jewel of animation, <laughs> like, like the, the greatest animation company ever because they put so much money and resources into their films. But like, you know what, Creativity doesn't necessarily mean you have to get all of your artists to go to Canada to, to research Turning Red. Like, you know, like, end of the day, creativity is the ability to imagine and the ability to use your resources wisely. So, yeah, obviously, when I was a kid, looking at those DVD extras, I was like, oh, my God, it must be amazing to work at Pixar because they care so much that they've given all of this time and energy into the research. But at the same time, like, I work at Netflix Animation and I work with some of the best artists in the world who have been poached from all manner of other studios. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's not really a question 
of the beautifully shaded penny is going to be just as beautiful, whether it is like in meticulous detail, because if you have a penny on a windowsill in a shot, doing less on that penny because it's not going to be in like the foreground of the shot is absolutely smart you know wisely using resources is the name of the game in this business because i'm on a feature right now that's like 120 million dollars and that's considered a low budget feature for animation you know it's insane the amount of money you can burn through and so pixar had a period where they were just burning cash on these films and you know obviously when they were doing incredible numbers when they first came out it was like in the same way that a lot of studios were before the sort of tech bubble burst you know they felt like they could only go up and so you end up with these incredible ventures but also it's a little bit indulgent you know, when you burn in 120 million or so and all this money, it's just like, yeah, you know, we'll just we'll throw some more crabs in there. It's absolutely fine. Don't worry <laughs> about it. Actually, that's one of the things that I think is really beautiful about this film is that because it's under the sea, they can replicate so many fish. It's actually really good for assets because you end up with a lot of backgrounds that are basically just looking out into an abyss. So yeah, the yes. assets in that movie are incredible, but there's actually an awful lot of scope in that movie in a way that is actually quite cost-effective, I think. You you might be able to speak to this, David. This may be because at the moment I've got my ears in two different worlds. One is Willem Dafoe and everything Willem Dafoe, and the other one is the ongoing WGA yes. strike at the moment. And one of the things I've learned from that is obviously like the way that writers in film, TV more so, is that people get to write on stuff and kind of in that learn how to kind of run a show themselves. Yes. Is that something that is comparable with animation? Because looking at Andrew Statton's trajectory as working at Pixar, it may be a Pixar thing, but he starts off very much as a writer on Toy Story, Bugs Life, Toy Story 2, and then kind of gets executive producer credit on Monsters, Inc. And then... He's, is, is that how it kind of works in animation, if you can shine a light onto that? or Yes, absolutely. And actually, that's a great question because it is slightly different from what's going on with the WGA strike. Obviously, Netflix Animation, along with all the other animation studios, are not affected directly by the WGA strike because we're TAG, the Animation Guild. And so technically, you know, all of these unions do want to show solidarity and support each other, but it is a very different uh, situation. And one of the reasons why it's different is because, yes, we do have that incubating of talent that you described, like the apprenticeship of storytellers, but it's not, weirdly enough, it's weirdly not necessarily in the writing department but the story Uh department which is which is my job so story artists in animation i say this a lot to people when i'm trying to describe what i do it's not simply doing storyboards like if you're doing commercials or even live action features story artists are called story artists not storyboard artists because we actually get to affect the direction of the plot and in fact things that happen we can write lines of dialogue we actually in a really privileged position to influence the script by being launched on a sequence and then we pick the camera angles we pick the performance we can add moments we can add gags a lot of the time they'll give us a sequence that's like a montage and say do a bunch of gags and so it's actually an incredibly organic process with a bunch of tried and tested filmmakers and i genuinely believe that story artists are writers and it's a testament to that that like if you look at the crew of this movie yes it's andrew stanton and lee unkridge lee unkridge obviously goes on to make toy story 3 bob peterson who's one of the co-writers was going to 
direct The Good Dinosaur before he was replaced. But actually, this was the first Pixar credit for many of the Pixar luminaries who went on to become directors. So Pete Sohn, Josh Cooley, Mark Andrews, they were all story artists in the story department. And then Adrian Molina was also on that film, and he became a writer on Coco, but then a co-director. So yeah, uh, Pixar definitely incubates in the story department people who are going to end up being asked and invited to pitch ideas to be directors in the end. And so, yeah, it's a fascinating process, but you don't necessarily get there by being a writer. It's it, it's it's yes. not a given. And, and I think it's because being a story artist is kind of like being on the front lines of the storytelling. And yeah. it's funny because we as story artists, you know, if, you, if you're good at what you do, you can be uh, well compensated, but we don't get residuals in the same way the writers do. It's not under the same guild. There are a lot of different r- rules. And actually one of the reasons why TAG is not necessarily obligated to not cross a picket line during the WGA strike is because animation actually has a much rawer deal than, than writers do at Hollywood, even though the, 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 the writers are, are getting a, a really, really sucky end of the stick from all of the, the, the changes that happened during the streaming model. So it's very interesting because as a storyboard artist, I rub shoulders with some of the best filmmakers in the industry. And it's like film school every day that you're in the story room. You know, you work with someone like mm-hmm. Henry Selleck, you work with someone like Phil Johnston, you know, you, you have conversations and script conversations with people like Chris Williams, Jorge Gutierrez, like just like the who's who of animation. And that's just people who are currently working in Netflix. And it's weird. I think if you're in a story department, you actually have more of a chance of becoming a director than writers yeah. do. Um, and I think yeah. it's just because they're not considered the same, even though they actually are the same. So the big reckoning that's coming along to Hollywood right now is A, that writers need to be treated with more respect. But there's a completely separate intersectional issue, which is going to have to come out during the next strike from my guild, which is that, hey, animation is no different from writing and should also have the same privileges. So on some level, I'm more advantaged in my medium, which is animation uh, in terms of having prospects for, for, you know, moving up the ladder than writers do. But at the same time, there's also an awful lot that we can do to get a better deal for ourselves. Yeah. I'm sure AI will be in the conversation for you guys as well, right? Yeah, (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's so funny that like basically everyone who posts AI, like, oh my God, look, game over, guys. Look at this AI commercial that looks like a Wes Anderson movie. It's like, well, bravo, you've managed to faithfully recreate uh, director style, which is basically static shots that don't move of people standing, not moving, not not emoting. You know what I mean? AI is still Mm -hmm. like a soulless, weird fabrication of creativity. It's the deep faking of talent, in in my opinion. And, uh, you know, the WGA is, is trying to take that on. They're kind of have the distinction of being the first to try to fight that battle but it's a battle we're gonna have to fight in animation because do you know what the tool itself is not inherently evil there are a load of processes within animation that ai could be used for like that don't involve having to steal images and scrub the internet of other people's work so it's like Mm -hmm. it's, it's not that we don't feel like ai is something that could be utilized it's the fact that it's being utilized by people who don't have the ability to draw to pretend like they can draw <laughs> because they've stolen artwork mm. from other people who have like so it, you know everyone says oh it, it takes a lot of talent to key in these prompts it's like well the prompt is make something really really beautiful and so then it goes and looks at stuff made by people who are incredibly talented <laughs> it's like is that yeah. talent really yours not really it's it's, it's yeah. a strange strange time i guess yeah. if your picks are and you're pumping in all the data to a specific ai for you just to kind of figure out what you can do with different assets and stuff like that and kind of i don't know i guess i guess one of the fears is obviously 
story artists, mm. right, can be the ones to suffer in that case because they could they could pump in. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how how it would work in that. So, and it it feels like I'm gonna I'm gonna make this podcast very long by going into the murky waters of AI. It is a very it is a philosophical <laughs> debate. Maybe it's a debate that requires a different podcast. But I will say just to put a little bow on it, I think the ultimate thing that trips up all discussions about AI is that the difference between a creative person and an AI is that an AI can never tell you why it did something. Like if you ask yes. a storyboard artist why they did something as well, it's because I feel like that's what the scene required. This, you ask an AI performer why it did this inflection or why it did this movement, it will not be able to tell you because it doesn't know, because it's not a person. It's not a creative, it's not a creative soul. And so you are always going to have something lost in that translation. And the weird thing about AI is that there's this kind of like weird feeling from these tech bros who think they're going to make animated movies. They genuinely believe that they're going to make animated movies with AI. And it's like... It means that you fundamentally do not understand what these animation studios believe in, which is like, you think you're going to make a movie with Pixar, the, the, the studio that spends an insane amount of money on getting the very best creative people in the industry to meticulously work on something for years and years and years. You think that those people are going to want to jump on board with you because you can press a button. It's just insane. It's, it's mm -hmm. lunacy. So the only people who are going to be availing themselves of this technology are going to be executives who want to cut people out of having to be paid or paid what they're worth and other people who are going to want to uh, have the instant gratification of feeling like they created something but are going to have no ability to actually do anything with it. So it just feels like, just feels like the only people who get shafted is the creatives and the audience. And I think it's a very eloquent point to make that, and I think, you know, we talk about the early Pixar that, you know, displays this especially, but I think you need that human input to have that creativity, give the life to these characters, mm. because I think maybe in all Pixar films, really a Pixar film really, for a large percentage of it, really floats or sinks on its characters, Absolutely. because these are, the, these are the, the people, all the fish that you... Mm gravitate towards that you swim with and certainly in this one you know obviously we're talking about pixar's hot streak at this time mm. as well you know we've got marlin and neiman we've got dorian of course we'll talk about yeah gil but i found in rewatching this as well and obviously it's it's credit to the work that the animators put in which you know we can certainly talk about sort of ad infinitum mm. with the, the expressions and the emotions and the teeth the teeth, the fish teeth, which is the real, the real chef's kiss for me. Those fish teeth, but certainly at the start of this film, you know, we 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 touch upon Pixar always having these emotional beginnings as well. You sort of forget that, like, when you don't watch Pixar for a while, how they 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 hit you in the feels oh. early doors to set up stakes for characters. Yeah. And I'd I'd vaguely remember the start of this film, but obviously the start setting up, you know. <laughs> The stakes of Marlin and Nemo and their dynamic, where unfortunately, I think it's a, a barracuda yeah. comes along and sort of and eats all of the fish eggs, absolutely jaws is it right up. I assume fishwife. I assume there's marriage under the sea. I assume they have laws. I think it's Elizabeth Perkins. Yeah, his 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 wife Coral. Well, let's not talk about the actual science that <laughs> clownfish can change gender at will. So, if this well, was if this yeah. was scientifically correct, as soon as his wife had died, 
Marlon would have turned into Marla. Do you know, that's so funny. I think there was a fish expert who was uh, consulting with the animators and was saying like, okay, well, you haven't done this bit, this bit, this bit isn't believable. You've got this part wrong about the fish anatomy. <laughs> and then the animators were like, yeah, the fish don't also talk either. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I'll, just, I'll just go home then. Cheers. Cheers, everyone, for a lovely... That opening is brutal, though. It's really effective. And if you look at the deleted scenes, it's fascinating the journey that they went on to getting to that opening sequence because Andrew Stanton had originally wanted the fate of Coral and the other eggs to be teased throughout the movie in the form of flashbacks that were going to be like breadcrumbs along the story of Marlin trying to get to Nemo. And that was like, you know, Andrew Stanton ends up making Wally, which, you know, like the first... 30 minutes of that movie has almost no dialogue whatsoever. It's a, it's an incredibly bold choice. And so Andrew Stanton's clearly very enamored of like experimentation and trying to push the boundaries of what animation can do. And with Nemo, he, you know, he was very much in love with the idea of like, let's do this sort of like anti-narrative whereby, you know, like, like non-linear sort of drip feeding of the facts of what happens. But he realized after a couple of screenings of people giving him the note was like, uh, Marlin is just not likable throughout the majority of the movie yeah. because he's like a, he's like a really, you know, a, overbearing dad and he's like horrible to dory most of the time and then andrew mm. stanton realized when he made that one change of just putting all of the like the death of the the wife and the kids on front street right at the beginning it just immediately fixed that problem and so mm. it, it was a very good lesson because i think finding nemo is a great masterclass story-wise i think about this all the time as a story artist it's a great masterclass in sophistication through simplicity which is that like, hmm. sometimes as filmmakers, we feel like we want to do something different and experimental because we think it's going to make up what we do more sophisticated. We want to show our working almost. Like we want people to see, oh, I see what he did there. That's fascinating. It's almost like we're making stuff to uh, thinking about the YouTube essay that's going to be written about what we do. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so everyone, everyone yeah. from, the next, from last year onwards is going to be, all the film students, it's going to be so obnoxious. They're all going to be trying to make everything everywhere all at once, every single one of them. And hmm. it's, going to be, it's going to be horrible. But one thing I've learned working in story and animation is that if you're in a complicated world the story needs to be simple and if you're in a simple world then the emotions have to be complicated and so marlin's emotions are actually really sophisticated but that means the narrative that he's in and the world that he's in has to be simple so just creating the upfront opening sequence of like he loses his wife and he just says flat out to the audience to nemo the egg when that incredible Thomas Newman's score comes in. Like, I promise I'm not going to let anything happen to you, Nemo. Oh my God, it gets me. And it's just like, you know, it sounds like storytelling 101. It sounds almost like a defeat to do a scene that simple. But you know what? If you're telling a story that's sophisticated, sometimes you just got to go out and do it, you know? And, and that's a perfect example. It's a, it's a movie with a simple, very linear narrative. But oh my mm -hmm. God, is it effective. Yeah, I was listening to Andrew Stanton on uh, the Screenwriting Life podcast, and he was talking about how, like, he is happy to change the wants and needs of the character for what, like, suits the film as opposed to, like, what the creator wants, yeah. like you're saying. Like, he, he was happy to, like, he wanted to do that because there's that, that kind of film school thing in him where he's like, oh, on a writing basis, it's great to have this nonlinear thing. Or he's happy to be like, oh, I want the character to, you know I mean, you have this want to the character to be a specific way. And he's like, well, if that doesn't fit the story, and if that's not what the audience kind of is going to be the best thing for the audience, then we've got to change that immediately. Yeah. He's kind of, he's, he kind of has this kind of beautiful, non-precious way about it. I know mm. that like his role in Pixar has kind of changed. He kind of 
comes in almost just like a script doctor for them at times as well now and kind of breaks a story. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's part of the brain trust now. He's like, he's, he's like the godfather. He just shows up whenever they need someone to kick the story <laughs> into shape. And it's very telling that when he made Finding Dory, when he goes back to that particular well... It makes um, sense in that film, right? Yeah, but but what's interesting about it is that like the it's the exact reverse, which is that he went in thinking he was going to do a linear narrative, and then he ends up having to do a non-linear flashback thread that goes through that movie as Dory's trying to remember how she lost her parents. So it's really funny that the motif that he was playing with in the first movie ends up being exactly what he does in the second movie, so that they're both kind of inverses of each other. It's kind of fascinating. But that makes sense for that character, exactly, right? Because exactly, she is yeah. always trying to remember. She's always forgetting. I've got a question for both of you shoot when is the first moment in this that you cry that is an excellent question oh if you cry at all i can jump in if people are please, please. <laughs> i mean i'm emotionally stunted at the best of times anyway <laughs> so i'm sitting there straight face as he cradles that egg like a maniac <laughs> <laughs> so i've watched it twice this week the first time much to the kind of chagrin of probably the makers of this film I watched part of it on my TV and I had to watch the last 20 minutes on my phone whilst having a cigarette in the garden before work, drinking a cup of tea. As it was but intended. On, as it was intended, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on an iPhone 10, I was in floods of, I'd like a real <laughs> lump in my throat, floods of tears at like quarter to eight in the morning. Uh, <laughs> When Nemo's trying to get out of that net at the end, where it's yeah. like, they're saying swim down. Mm. I think the lump started for me when Nemo says to Marlon, I hate you. Oh, and mate. as somebody who is like a father of a four-year-old, and I'm like, I was just like, this, this, this could be in my future. Like my son could tell me he hates me. And it like that moment just like devastated me. And... <laughs> This this has been the first time I've watched this film again since becoming a dad because I think I've like subconsciously held it at arm's length because I'm like I don't think we're ready for this yet, Petros. I had to be it had to be hosting a podcast about the works of Willem Dafoe that I would have to like. Do you mean kind of like? brace myself and be like you gotta watch it you I'm probably like, <laughs> you looked at the at, at the film list and you were like don't do this that's why season one baby get it out get it out of the way let's <laughs> rip get, the band-aid get, off <laughs> get the heartache out of the way because it's i must confess my dear petros i was looking forward to this pod with an almost sadistic amount of glee thinking about <laughs> considering our conversations we've had about other movies in relations like the crudes and spider-verse talking about being a father and it's something i can completely relate to it's a fascinating thing pixar has more rewatchability value i've noticed than a lot of other animations definitely of disney movies and i've realized after watching finding nemo again why that is which is that it's almost like the narratives, because their narratives are about adult problems. They're not mm -hmm. like about ch children who have an I want, which is your, your average Disney format. It's like, oh, I'm a princess and I want to do this, or I want to have an adventure. They're, they're effective stories. They sell a lot of dolls, but they don't really go much deeper than a simple aspirational journey. Whereas with Finding Nemo and all the other Pixar movies that have been made, they're basically about self-improvement. They're about adult problems and existential and emotional issues that have to be overcome. And because of that, they have like a slow action time bomb release of meaning that will get you in a second wave the longer mm -hmm. into the future you go. So I watched Finding Nemo 
when I was basically barely, like I was a teenager, but like barely into my teens. And that really, really hit me because I was identifying with Nemo. And now I watched it now as a 37-year-old living in Iowa. And I've been in a relationship with this beautiful Iowa girl for now going on, oh golly, 12 years. And she has children. And so now I love them both as though they were my own. So now I watch Finding Nemo again. And now the moment where, where Marlin loses Nemo... The, when the diver takes him and just Albert Brooks's like tortured screams of Nemo's name, just chasing the boat. And then the moment when the boat's trail evaporates and it's gone, just his POV of seeing the trail go cold. I was struck with the most panicked, visceral reaction of like, if I was a parent and I literally saw the boat's wake disappear in an endless ocean and they were just, and I'm a fish, like, there's no way. Like, he's gone. And then he, like, breaks up to the surface and is, like, calling out for his son and desperately going back underwater to breathe. It's a really funny gag, but it's, like, it's viscerally upsetting and, and yeah. disturbing for me now that I am someone who has learned what it's like to feel incredibly frightened on behalf of people. It's like having a part of yourself external to your body that you feel responsible for and you feel you get gripped with terror at the thought of anything bad happening to them. So... It's weird because like Toy Story is also about parents, like Woody and Buzz, like it's about the, that trilogy's arc is about what happens when your parents grow up and go to college and leave you in retirement age, basically. That whole thing is about the passage of time. And so a lot of Pixar movies have an initial meaning and then a slow action release second meaning that hits mm-hmm. you at a later point in life. And Finding Nemo is like the father of it, you know, because it's, yeah, it's yeah. traumatizing to watch it again as a dad. You're like, oh shit, I'm Marlin. I'm going to have an imperfect relationship with my kids. I'm going to have to let them swim out into the world on that stingray at the end. And I'm not going to have any control over what happens to them. And I have to be okay with that because otherwise, like, they might die, but they might also live is like an incredibly complex emotion as a dad. I found that last year because what I'm working on at Netflix Animation right now, I can't announce what I'm working on in terms of the the actual title of the project, but I've been for the last two years working on adaptations of the Roald Dahl books at Netflix. And this isn't the project I was working on, but I reread the book, Danny the Champion of the World, and... That happened to me as well because it's about a father-son story. And when I was a kid, it was like, oh, this guy's got the best dad ever. He's such a romantic figure. And then I read it again as an adult with two kids and I'm like, this guy sucks. He's the worst dad ever. He's putting his kid in danger. Well, like, I can't believe his kid is, is following his father into this wood to go and poach pheasants. And that happens with Finding Nemo. You're like, okay, I can see why Marlin is wrong. I can see why Marlin has some growing to do. When I was a kid, all I could think was, how beautiful is it that this father is braving the whole ocean to go find his kid. Whereas now I'm watching it going, really, there's a genuine feeling of loss and sort of a bereftness that comes with a happy ending of watching your kid go out into the world that I did not fully understand until now. So yeah, that that really hit me. I mean, to answer your question, by the way, Petros, just before we move on to answer your question, I start crying from the moment that he cradles the egg and says Nemo. And then the first real proper like one-two punch of Tommy Newman's incredible score kicks in, that Nemo mm-hmm. egg. Um, everything from the first track, Nemo egg, to Franz Like These at the very end when the Stingray disappears into the murk. I'm in floods of tears just listening to that score, man. Because a little story, I was watching this movie again 
after my my love had to go to bed she was like incredibly tired and so she i was sat in the downstairs with this massive entertainment system this giant wall screen that we watch all of our movies on which is like really really high res and i was like okay great i get to watch finding nemo and check out those sweet visuals but because dana had gone to bed I couldn't watch it with very high volume. I was like really trying not to wake her up. And I just realized after about five minutes in when the Nemo egg score comes in, I was like, can't do it. I need that Tommy in my ears. Davey needs his Tommy bad. And so I just had to turn it off and go to my desk computer and put the (laughs) headphones in, the noise canceling headphones and just let that emotional score just like wash over me because it gets me, it gets me every time. I think if Randy Newman, who's obviously synonymous with the Toy Story movies or even Michael Giacchino, who does very emotional scores for Pixar movies, I think neither of them could have made the score that Thomas Newman makes in that film. I think a, a huge, it's almost like the greatest visual effect they have is the fact that those visuals are coupled with that score. It just, it gets me in pieces. We get this kind of John Williams-esque, like, Jaws theme mm. as well, that kind of discordant piano we get mm. when when Nemo's taken as well and kind of crops up a couple of times, that kind of, like, it's really, like, I don't know, it's really heartbreaking. I think, to your point of, like, the stuff it gets with fatherhood, it's, it's just really small moments that you pick up on, like, being a father is, you see Marlon's like optimism, like before, like, and it kind of yeah. just gets that like thing of despite yourself. And obviously, like, this is kind of the biggest like thing of the, the losing the mother and the kind of all the other eggs. But even just becoming a dad in general, you kind of have this like devil may care attitude of like, yeah, when I have it, like, if I have a kid, it's going to be like, we're going to be having fun and stuff like that. And like, he's talking about, yeah, we're right near the kind of edge and we can. Like, mm. what, wouldn't that be great for them to grow up in? Yeah. And then you find you, you kind of catch yourself. You, maybe not as kind of compounded and overbearing as Marlon is, but you kind of find yourself going, oh, that like, that carefree attitude to it all kind of slips away a little bit. And you do find yourself going, watch out. What like, like watch out for that. And like, you kind of do, maybe that's the disposition that I am, but like, <laughs> I, I do find myself being a, but it's, I think, where Marlon it's kind of misplaced and not knowing when to let go as we perfectly get distilled when they're inside the whale's mouth and like do you know what I mean it's a, mm, yeah. you just need to let go um <laughs> like it's kind of like the whole themes of the film just in in one scene well speaking of the sophistication of a simple concept like the fact that it's a sequence that's built around a fish doing a freudian slip you know what i mean <laughs> that feels like such an adult moment for a kids movie that he calls dory yeah. nemo in that moment and repeats the thing he said at the beginning that's that's what i love about the push-pull of simplicity and sophistication if you look at the plot it it runs on rails so smoothly because it's a linear this guy's got to get from a to b but then you know who are the four main characters there's like nemo the son marlin the father and then there's dory the sort of surrogate daughter surrogate child because she's oblivious and goofy and lives in in the moment and then there's gil our friend defoe who's like an example of what marlin would be like if he was an irresponsible father so it's like those roles are actually really simple when you think about it. It's like, okay, it's a father and son. The problem is that he's too overbearing. So we're going to give him a child that's totally carefree. And we're going to give his son a father figure who is a letdown. And it's like, on the face of it, that feels like storytelling 101 again. But it's doing a simple story to tell a very sophisticated character growth. I found on these rewatches as well, just obviously without the kind of 
motif of like the character looking for their child getting swallowed by a, a whale <laughs> there is there is kind of some dna of pinocchio within this as well like yeah. the kind of child going off the school and then that kind of leads them into this ragtag band of of people basically in in <laughs> pleasure island is a fish tank in this case almost <laughs> <laughs> it's almost pinocchio told through geppetto's eyes almost that's an interesting like, i've never thought about it that way that's what i kind of realized on on this rewatch mm. it's very interesting because obviously for me like i'm not a father i have a dog and a cat which i'm not saying is comparable to a human child. oh it is it is because um, <laughs> <laughs> i've got a dog too and i'll be devastated but, when he but goes i feel like what we're all saying is we can't let our children go near boats no. I think I th they get away from the boat because the scuba man will come for you. That's the boogeyman of our time. PSA time, never touch the butt. <laughs> That's what we should all take away from this. Never touch the butt. Beware the scuba man. These were all Scooby-Doo episodes that they never used. You know, this all goes to say, as you said, like how Pixar just gets you like 10 years later, 20, 30 years later, which is just a, a testament to how... Mm layered and smooth their operation is because i don't think and this is no discredit to the studio and the team who worked in it but i don't think i'm going to rewatch b movie in 20 years time and be like start crying about the honey and the bee in the hospital bed no um, <laughs> maybe not on the you know the same wavelength i think to me these days one of the most affecting scenes is just seeing all the dirty tanks i'm just like Oh, God, I need to clean that real bird. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny because, like, you're right. The emotion is the most enduring thing because Finding Nemo is an incredibly funny movie. Like, the sharks yeah. with their support group, the fish tank gang. I mean, it's a murderer's row of really funny character actors who fill out the roles, like Stephen Root as the guy who's like, bubbles, the bubbles, bubbles, bubbles. And, like, Alison Janney as a starfish, which is just, she's got an insanely funny voice for a starfish to have. You know, Jeffrey Rush, and then the sharks like Barry Humphreys, Bruce Spence, Eric Banner, and obviously the obligatory Ratzenberger cameo. Like, it's a really funny movie with lots of watertight gags, if you will. Like, the, the exploding submarine that culminates in probably the most highest brow fart joke in a movie which is just like that yeah. one little bubble hitting the surface and the bird just being like nice and flying away it's like it's a really funny movie but you are right because this is a, this is an argument i have all the time in my job which is like i was on a movie where we really had to fix some plot holes before we could lock the story and i was trying to fill in some dramatic weight of a backstory of a character and we would have an argument with like the director and the producer because they were saying well the studio wants to put more gags in just put more gags in funny is money is the quote that i got i, I got told all <laughs> right. the time and i was sure. like except is funny money like i mean like yeah you get a bunch of movies that are very successful comedies and netflix right now their algorithm right now is screaming for more comedic animated movies but when i think about movies that i remember like do you remember how funny Coco is, even though Coco is really funny? No, you remember the scene at the end where he plays the guitar to his grandmother and she starts singing along with him and has a moment where she comes out of her dementia just for like a shining second. And, and we all cried. Exactly, and Inside <laughs> Out and Finding Nemo. Do you remember the way that they made you laugh, even though they absolutely did? You know that they you made you laugh. remember Bing Bong? Yeah. Remember Bing Bong, Do you baby? Remember Bing Bong? Like, <laughs> funny thing about Up is that Up was like a trial balloon for Inside Out. They were like, hey, can we kill the wife in the first five minutes of Up and make people sad? And it's like, yeah, we can. Hey, what if we did that for like an entire fucking movie with Inside Out and just have like a, the whole the, the 100 minutes of the plot be just making the audience cry? They're sadists. But it does create something that stands and endures over time in a way that something like the Angry Birds movie, which is an objectively funny movie, you know, won't. 
And that, that, that's very true. I think where this film, and it t- touches on a point you made earlier on, that it kind of holds up and before everyone became wise to Pixar's thing is, I think the thing that ruined Pixar was that, that meme, which was, what if toys had feelings? What if fish had feelings? And then it got, it got and it, it, the end point is, what if feelings had feelings? And everyone was like, that kind of infographic just like realized, we were like, oh yeah. yeah, like now we've got Elemental coming out. It's like, what if, what if Elements had feelings? And it's kind of like, it's like we, 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 we see the working out now. We see the kind of like the touch point. The formula, yeah. But there's something pure about finding Nemo in that sense because. One, we all have these fond memories before we have the cynicism of what Pixar was doing. And I think it is that thing that Pixar kind of, and it gets said either way, they take that Studio Ghibli approach to filmmaking, right? Mm. In that we will talk about heavy subjects and kind of not sugarcoat them and kind of not like... Mm. And the film, and I think is what, what, what you were saying about like the film hitting you differently at a different point in your life, is the fact is it... It is the same film, and it's not specifically through doing gags, like kind of more like a DreamWorks way of doing it. It's like, we'll have Mm. gags for the parents. This film is like, Mm. we just got gags for everyone, but we've got thematic things that kind of work for a child, like on, on some level, like you can picture yourself as Nemo. Or as an adult, you're like, oh shit, I am Marlon. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. and they're all incredibly relatable. And I think there's a line where Jeffrey Rush is the pelican. Yes, Nigel, I think. Oh, I and and there's a moment where <laughs> the moment where the other pelican starts choking on Marlon and Dory on the the key, and all the pelicans are watching this guy choking. And Jeffrey Rush is like, somebody ought to go help the poor fellow. And they're like, Meh. and then he goes. Well, don't everybody fly off at once <laughs> and then flies off. It's such an adult moment, but it's not like adult because it's like lowbrow or anything. It's just like a moment that isn't like, hey, kids, how's about we do this thing? It's just like regular guys hanging out on the side of the wharf. You, they feel like real people who say real things to yeah, each yeah. other. They're not cynical, but they're like lived in. They're very relatable and human. And I, I think you're right. There's the whole thing about what if feelings had feelings. I think it certainly does help this movie that fish do have feelings. <laughs> you know, they are at least animals. And so there's an immediacy to Finding Nemo that doesn't require really any suspension of disbelief. I mean, even Toy Story requires a suspension of disbelief that when you turn your back, toys come to life. Whereas people know fish are things and that they have eyes and, and mouths and, and personalities maybe. You know, they certainly feel that way to me. The turtles, by the way, I really wanted to say this because this is a huge thing that came back to me when I watched the movie. So last year, myself and Dana and the kids, we all went to the Virgin Islands. And I actually, it was one of the most, like probably top five moments of my life was I got to swim with Sita. like five times during the during the two weeks we were there oh my god i cannot describe to you how nice it was it was like we were in this beautiful water and and actually it was there were a lot of reefs there but they were you know they were actually getting smaller and smaller because of pollution and things like that They, they weren't even as vibrant as they have been in the past but there were these moments where we got to swim with the creatures and what's fascinating to me i think we even saw a barracuda did a lot of snorkeling and diving and I can't describe to you how I was already, me and Dana had already become vegetarians uh, before we went to the Virgin Islands, but I think fish was still kind of like, we were like flexitarians. 
And I can remember swimming with this incredibly beautiful, ancient looking sea turtle. And most of the time, like you'd see them down on the bottom and then they would always come up for air and they were like, they glide gracefully up to the water. And then their little head pops up and they go, (gasps) and then they go back down again. It's so cute. I was like, I'm in love with these turtles. And then the last time I swam with them before we left, I just decided to try to swim alongside one. And and he, for some reason, I guess that Andrew Staten's performance as crush is pretty on the nose because that turtle was so laid back and chill he was like yeah you can swim next to me i guess he was he was totally unafraid of me because he had no reason to be afraid of me because they were a protected species in that area and so we, we actually swam together side by side Amazing. for about 10 minutes and then after 10 minutes he clearly got bored of me and was just like laters and he just like swam off into the blue <laughs> almost like i was watching a scene out of finding Nemo. this turtle just just evaporated into the haze and i can remember being struck by this feeling of absolute happiness that he was not in a tank and that he was not in an aquarium that i was in his backyard and then when he swam off he was just going off to his regular day in his life and i was a visitor in his home and I found myself feeling like, oh my God, I just, I'm never going to eat fish. Like I, I like, I'm, I'm going to have to say goodbye to sushi guys. <laughs> Cause I, I just, yeah. I just loved knowing, I mean, like I just loved knowing that, that he was free. So watching Finding Nemo again, seeing the turtles was such a joy. It reminded me of just how much, cause this movie actually had an impact on, on the way people treated fish weirdly after the movie came out. Like I think two weird things happened. One was the people started trying to get Dory and Marlin species, mm-hmm. but they're two species that should not be in small tanks and it kills them. So apparently like a bunch of parents bought fish for their kids and they died. But then also a bunch of other people felt guilty and then released their fish into the wild and they destroyed some like ecosystems, some, some ecologies, yeah. ecosystems. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it, it, it's always weird. There's always going to be like a babe effect where people are going to watch a movie that makes them feel like they humanize an animal and be like that's it i'm i'm not eating bacon anymore but like uh yeah it, it, it's interesting because fish is a bit more of a complicated issue i did love swimming with those turtles and it, it definitely gave me an extra dimension on how much i love that film for sure and i think one of the big takeaways of the film if nothing else obviously touching upon the cultural impacts that this film had you know for the for the worse unfortunately for ecosystems and the species themselves we certainly and as the message that is drilled in by the sharks that fish are friends <laughs> and not food especially in you know that we should be you know treating these ecosystems with a greater deal of kindness and not sort of disturbing all these ecosystems and i think definitely on the rewatch with all that in mind it's i felt it adds somewhat to the stakes of like the tank gang and obviously the mm. and almost like the suicide squad of fish in that fish tank mm. and gill stakes in there and obviously to, to bring it around to defoe the fish of the hour really yeah his are interesting because he i think he's almost has this like kind of i don't know like uncle kind of vibe to nemo very much takes him under his scarred wing and he's the very distinct fish he's got that scarred face he doesn't really look like any other fish that we've seen like this is a fish that has seen things that has been through a life and it's Mm. you know having the stories of marlin and dory trying to cross the ocean to find this place that they have no idea exists in sydney versus the the confines of the tank and you know, and I suppose with the focus on Defoe as well, it, did your rewatch sort of change anything with, with their sort of story on the tank for you? 
Yeah, actually it did. In the when I first watched Finding Nemo, I really liked the Tank Gang, but I was much more aware of the Tank Gang being like the B plot uh-huh. of the story. So even though you like those characters, I mean, I, I I love the the actors that they got to play those people, but like they are, if you're looking at it from a very objective story artist perspective, they're, they're the more the, the more thinly sketched characters in the movie. You know, they don't have enough time to really like rise up beyond a few character personality traits. You know, one of them's a blowfish, and one of them's a, one of them a pufferfish. And one of them is really into cleanliness and Jacques is French, you know, um, <laughs> and one of them's obsessed with bubbles and stuff. And so I was watching it this time around. And actually, because I was focusing on Defoe for the podcast, I was like, actually, this B plot is a plot without which the movie doesn't work, which is that it's not possible for you to just have Marlin go on a journey because A, it would have been distressing to not see Nemo the whole way through the movie. If you cut out mm. those scenes and you don't know if Nemo is alive for the rest of the movie, it would have been agonizing to watch them go on the mission. So just knowing that Nemo is alive and safe, at least for now, until Dala shows up, you know, they put a clock on it, but at least when you cut to Marlon and Dory having hijinks, you get to enjoy the comedy of that because like, it's okay, Nemo's okay. He's going to get to Nemo eventually. But I realized that that sequence, Willem Dafoe's character, such a superb anchor because they actually, when he first appears, like he's played as quite a sinister presence i love his reveal of his his tattered broken flipper and it's actually really surprising because like people often forget that this is a movie with excellent representation of differently abled characters you know both nemo and gill are aligned by both having the same disability basically but also they're characters that overcome the way that they are different and and still don't require help that they do things all by themselves so gill is actually a really fantastic character in terms of like empowering nemo and sending a great message to people in the audience who might be differently abled to be like, hey, actually, you know, I work with great people in the animation industry who are differently abled, who are still incredible artists, which is another reason why I fucking hate AI, because it's like, you know what? (laughs) It's not the false premise that like AI empowers people who are differently abled, because I know differently abled people who do fucking great artwork. So fuck you. (laughs) But no, when Gil shows up, I love that they play him like he's going to be a villain, but I love that they stop short of doing that. Because this is a movie that doesn't need a villain. This is a movie that needs everyone to grow in their points of view. Nemo needed a character who gave him unfettered freedom and see where that limitation was. Because in order for the satisfactory ending when the father and son are reunited, it can't just be that Marlin changes. Nemo also has to realize why his father is afraid and realize that he can't just do everything. And, like, there are some beautiful moments, like Nemo hearing Nigel's, you know, Jeffrey Rush does an amazing rendition of what their adventure was, like, that amazing Thomas Newman score. You see Nemo realize that his father is being brave to come and get him. But I love that Gil's arc is one of simply realizing that he was not a bad guy, but just that he was so... He was like a prisoner who was who was constantly trying to break out. He's basically Clint Eastwood in Escape from Alcatraz. And he just realizes that he endangered this kid because he was so intent on getting out that he was tunnel visioned and that he put him in harm's way. I think that's a really, really nice character. And this time, because I was really focusing on him, it really just like, I feel like it worked like gangbusters. Yeah. And the other thing I really liked about it is that there was a deleted scene 
that they played with with his character that I'm so glad it ended up on the cutting room floor, which is that um, at first they were going to make him much more of a false idol. Like they were going to actually like play him much more like a villain in that they had a plot line where Gil was constantly bragging about this place that he grew up and like it was a, it was like an island with like a, a human skull shape and it was like he had these stories of adventures and scrapes he got into. So Nemo thought he was super cool. And then Nemo finds out like later in the film that all of that is just from a children's book that's read in the waiting room of the <laughs> dentist office and it's like there's a moment where he sees the pages being thumbed over and you get the voiceover of Gil telling all those stories and it's basically the end of the usual suspects but with fish you hear it's like a, and I, I think I actually wrote down in my notes when I was re-watching those deleted scenes Gil is Kaiser Sushi <laughs> there's an ending of the movie where he swims off and suddenly his gimpy fin just <laughs> starts swimming normally <laughs> but i'm really glad they lost it because it felt like another moment of stanton trying on a piece of cinematic like "Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this type of film moment and it wasn't appropriate for the story they were telling because like i said you know simplicity is is the partner of sophistication and it's it's all you need from gill is defoe's fantastic delivery of the line where the starfish, Alison Jenny says, don't, don't make him do that again. And he just goes, no. And he sort of shrinks back and swims backward in shame. It's a brilliant performance and very subtle work from Defoe. And I, I, I love it. I think it's a really important part of the story. This would have been Defoe's first voice acting role as well, I believe. And he, Indeed. He said in an interview that he put way more effort into the character than he usually would, like he was actually writing what would be Gil's backstory, not the fabricated one that we hear, but like mm, he believed mm. that Gil was from a pet shop, either like mistreated. And the reason he's kind of ended up where he's ended up is like kind of nobody else really wants him kind of thing. And he kind of, he said he doesn't really care about the backstories because he's a, like a theater actor who can kind of just take the text and yeah. do what needs to be done. Whereas like with this is like, well, it's the first time I'm not really acting against anyone because obviously the way of animation mm. is like, yep, come in, get in the booth, like do it a bit more menacing, Willem, do it a little less menacing, do it do it this way, do it that way. Like you're reacting to this and like, yeah, I just find it interesting that he kind of changed his whole process for this kind mm. of new way of working. Yeah, the process of recording actors for animation is very counterintuitive to what actors are used to. And the reason being that like, yeah, you'd love it to be like the way that Wes Anderson did the voice acting for Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is that he got all the actors together and filmed it like a play in like his backyard, I think. I think he recorded all their dialogue together because he writes his scripts incredibly rigidly. Whereas in animation, scripts are constantly being revised. There are multiple screenings, sometimes five screenings of the feature in which the movie gets taken, ripped up and rebuilt over and over and over again. So actors often get hired within the first or second screening, and then they re-record their lines over and over again with completely new things that they're saying, even new characters or new backstories and stuff like that. So it's actually an incredibly impersonal job to be a voice actor in animation. And so, you know, as much as you might want to get into a room with the rest of your actors, it's actually counterproductive and not very cost-effective to get them <laughs> together every time. You know, like it's not important for Tom Hanks and Tim Allen to be buzzed and Woody in the same room because Buzz and Woody will be saying entirely different things by the next screening. So it's like, it's, it's just going to confuse you more than anything else. The job of an actor in this instance is to provide all like the chopped wood to build the house. You know what I mean? And that involves going 
into a lot of specificity with the filmmakers and you just have to trust that the filmmakers know what they're doing because they're, they're taking the pieces. They've, they've drawn the diagram for it. And so you just have to commit to every single moment in isolation. There's a lot of very tr tried and tested voiceover actors like Mark Hamill, Tara Strong in the industry who are like career voice actors. And every now and again, you'll get a movie like Robots where you have like Halle Berry and Ewan McGregor doing voice acting roles and they just don't make any impression whatsoever because they're actors and they're great actors. They're brilliant actors. They're Academy Award winning actors, but they're not voiceover actors and they don't really leave an impression like someone as seasoned as Robin Williams does. So a perfect example would actually be a casting, or should I say recasting, of this movie, which is that Marlin, for the longest time over multiple screenings of Finding Nemo, was actually portrayed by William H. Macy. And William H. Macy, incredible character actor. You know, Coen Brothers... Regular, like absolutely brilliant performer, great voice, very distinctive. You can see exactly why they cast him. But for some reason, even though he recorded like lines for the whole of the movie up until very late in the process, they realized that like his voice just wasn't gelling with who Marlon was and it didn't land. And sometimes, sometimes it's hard for, for actors to get there because of the process. Like, and you have to put it through the edit and the edit never lies. So they watch the screenings and they're like, something is wrong with Marlon's performance and it's not anything he's doing wrong. It's just that he doesn't feel like Marlon. And then they end up casting Albert Brooks, who, you know, I would never in a million years have been like, who should we get to play this character in this massive movie albert brooks <laughs> the guy from broadcast news you know what i mean but he's perfect in it and he if you did a drinking game of the number of times he says nemo you'd be dead like he has to scream <laughs> he has to scream nemo's name all the way through the movie nemo 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 i gotta find my son nemo he does not shut up about nemo the whole way through the movie and yet his voice and his performance apparently albert brooks despised the actual process of recording it because he's just, it just wasn't what he was used to. But because he was the right voice for that character, all of the work he does, without it, there is no movie. And so it's incredible how alchemic the process of voice acting and voice casting is. And like, I shudder to think what, like, what a different viewing experience Finding Nemo starring William H. Macy might have been. I guess it's one of those things you'll never get to see, kind of like Back to the Future. Like, who was it who was going to be in Back to the Future before My Michael J. Fox? Eric Stoltz. Oh, like, it's like seeing the Stoltz Back to the Future. Well, you, you just can't imagine. You do it. see some of Stoltz in Back to the Future, but that's for another podcast. We're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that something that Pixar always nails, though, is more often than not, they really do nail the castings and, like, Mm. The actor is the character, the character is the actor. It's crazy we've not even talked about Ellen DeGeneres yet, you know. <laughs> That's how great the cast is, there's so many. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Albert Brooks is, is great as, as Marlin, and obviously with, with a, a, a bit more of a tunnel vision focus on the phone, when I was re-watching it with my partner a few days prior to recording, I was like, oh, we're, we're coming up to Finding Nemo. She's like, oh, I love Finding Nemo, I'd love to watch that with you. I was like, oh, did you know that Willem Dafoe is Gil? She's like, what is he <laughs> I, was, I was like yeah and i think this goes back to something i think you, you touched upon earlier david with, with the foe how there are so many roles that you just don't know mm. that he has and how he just blends into this character so seamlessly yeah as he does here and he gets this you know his, his wonderful arc of being a little less reckless to the point where he's loaded into is it mount wanahakalugi <laughs> wanahakalugi <laughs> yes wanahakalugi that oh, to save sharkbait <laughs> 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 and, and you know when your character arc is that you will fire yourself at a child to save another and i think that's 
I think that is a success. When you get your audience rooting against a little girl. Yeah. Well, the, th- <laughs> the thing is as well, is that Gil, like when you realise it's Willem Dafoe, you you start to think like, yeah, it kind of, the fish looks like, it's got a Willem Dafoe-esque look to it. As, as, as a, he does look a lot like Willem Dafoe. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd sort of, I'd, I think I've read somewhere that they designed him sort of intentionally to have like more lines in the face. I don't know if the mm. scarring was intentionally a part of that. I think his gills look almost like the sort of the smile lines that Defoe has on yeah, his yeah, face. Yeah. Defoe basically has the Grinch's smile and that like he can look almost, he can play Norman Osborn in No Way Home. He can play Norman Osborn and almost look the same age that he was when Spider-Man came out. But at the same time, when he smiles, he, he does the Grinch smile and, and like about a thousand lines appear on his face. It's like a masterpiece. Yeah. A distinctive face. Definitely on a secondary watch as well. I was just kind of thinking, and I know that you're not really supposed to, and not that I did like side with the dentist or anything, hmm. but he must be thinking like, why do my fish like keep trying to escape? <laughs> like, what is going on in this tank? And also, what do they have going on with that pelican? That doesn't make evolutionary sense. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I do love the line with Nigel. It's a brilliant piece of script writing. I think it's a phenomenal script. Stanton and Peterson and the other co-writer did such a phenomenal job. There's a line where they managed to overcome the ultimate plot loop, like, like plot hole, which is like, how can a bird that eats fish be friends with fish? It's like, and they get rid of it in one line so effortlessly. He says, sorry if I ever took a snap at you, birds got to, <laughs> fish got to swim, birds got to eat. It's such a brilliant <laughs> line because he just, he says it so nonchalantly and you're like, okay, I get it. It's just the way of the jungle. It's like, it's fine. Yeah, of course I got to eat, fish got to swim. It's fine. We're friends. <laughs> it makes total sense. <laughs> and really it doesn't make any sense at all, but it just, it, it's a testament to how, how brilliantly delivered that line is. It's so simple. And then you just move on. The, the ch- children accept it immediately. One of the interactions that I always loved, and, um, you know, with the tank gang and mm. Nigel, is that sort of any time he pops into the window, they just have a running commentary on the intricacies of dentistry <laughs> because it's all they can see. Like he's trying to tell them that, like Marlon and Dory are here. It's like, oh, you've done a thing with this. It's like, oh, wait, wait, there's no time for that. <laughs> just really, like the comedy in it really holds up as well. One of the, yeah. the bits of comedy that I enjoyed, and it's just a very kind of just like throwaway gag thing, but. When the story of Marlin is like spreading through the ocean because he's told it to the turtles on the East Australian current and yeah. it's spreading far and wide and that's how it gets back to the tank mm. gang. It's just two like swordfish jousting. <laughs> like, look, and then the fish went, ah, good job, sir. And <laughs> nice belly, old man. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> Obviously, when I watched it as a young Brit from Oxford, when I was watching it in the cinema, I was like, I am one of those. Swordfish. That's who I, that's who I identify with. It's me and my twin brother, Steve, <laughs> jousting. <laughs> representation matters. <laughs> exactly. I felt very seen. <laughs> Actually, speaking of representation, just to shine a little bit of a light on Dory, because she's obviously fantastic and so such an indelible character that they made a whole sequel about her. I thought she was such a refreshing take on the buddy comedy character because just from the sheer representational value of it being Ellen DeGeneres because of the fact that like most buddy movies, it's just two guys being silly together. And the thing I love about the Dory character is that the Dory character is a female character in an animation that is not there to be a love interest. She's not there to be defined at all by her gender. In fact, it's a character that could have been either gender without changing a single line of dialogue. Yeah. And I, I actually mm-hmm. absolutely love that because basically you think that's a character that could have been Charlie Day. It could have been, <laughs> could have been yeah. you know, Billy Crystal. It could have been any number of other brilliant character comedy actors. But the fact that it's Ellen is so brilliant. And actually, Dana's daughter absolutely loved 
Dory when she was growing up and she loved Ellen DeGeneres but speaking of uh, how you don't know people are in the film she she was once asked to create her Mount Rushmore of her influences and it was a Mount Rushmore I believe <laughs> I believe it was Jane Goodall Dory and Ellen DeGeneres <laughs> on the on the Mount Rushmore because she hadn't connected that they were the same person. Amazing. And someone had to say to her, you realize Ellen DeGeneres is Dory? And she's like, no, Dory's Dory. Dory's a fish. <laughs> but it, it, it's actually beautiful. I love the story of how they came to it being Ellen DeGeneres as well. I think, and this goes back to how far ago they were working on it. It was on like the Ellen mm. show, like the sitcom she was doing. Mm. And I think they, like mm. Andrew Statton realized within a sentence she had like moved on to five different topics and it's like oh that's mm. that's our other fish because originally it was going to be a male fish and they're like oh no it's ellen yeah. and then they start he says the first time they'd ever done it at pixar at least or the first time he'd ever done it is he actually wrote the character with mm. ellen degeneres in mind which like and it shows yeah. man it shows they tailor that performance so beautifully and she also, this was, this came along at a period in her career when, you know, she loses her job at the Ellen show. She was like a casualty of the changing times as she came out and she ended up having a career dip where she vanished for a while. Dory is a huge reason why she ends up having a second golden age. Yeah. You know, like she becomes most kids' favorite characters in that movie and she's phenomenal in it. And not only that, but like there are certain moments where you can even see the animators are using, doing expressions that are clearly sort of taken from the Ellen DeGeneres like expression playbook yeah. you know what I mean there's a bit where she's like this is a whole ocean we're not the only two people in here. you know <laughs> like she's sort of like and then she sort of like bugs her eyes and does like a little smile and it just feels like you're watching something out of the Ellen show and it's it's brilliant because you're right if if a male character had been that character yeah maybe it would have been funny because they really do every single possible uh, short-term memory loss joke in the book and it's brilliant <laughs> but I do think it would have been wrote you know what I mean they did so many memory jokes so many humdingers that I think they shot themselves in the foot because in Finding Dory, they don't have any more memory jokes. Like, <laughs> basically, that I, every single moment where she doesn't remember something in the first movie is just an absolute lull. It's a testament to how brilliant she is and how well-written she is that the sequel almost feels redundant. <laughs> they just leave it all out in the field with her. But, oh, my God, what a performance. I could say great performances all around. And, you know, as we have when we could keep talking about things, just how well-constructed that the story is and that, Everyone really gets a happy ending. You know, mm. Marlon gets his son back. Dory herself has a new sort of sense of family. Uh, the tank gang escape, which I think a, a tremendous post credit scene. Yes. In the bag station going, now what? <laughs> um, Are we taking the credits themselves as canon? Because we see in the credits them swimming around in the ocean. Or yes. are, they, are, are and, they free? And then they... Well, Defoe and all of the Tank Gang cast reprise their roles in Finding Dory in the post credit scene of that movie where they show up again, uh, still in the bags, and the bags are still covered. The bags are now filled with their piss and shit. And it looks, they, look like they look like they've been through the ringer the whole time the second movie happened, and then they get captured by the Marine Biology uh, Research Center, and, and then you hear, once again, now what? Again, that's the last line of Finding Dory. Do you know what's funny is the Finding Dory is like... I think Finding Dory is a decent movie. It's never going to be a patch on how incredible Finding Nemo yeah. was. Finding Nemo is like a perfect story contained. But if there was ever a time where I'd be like, do you know what? I'll see a third Finding Nemo movie would be if I just to find out what happens to the tank. Yeah. I just like bring, give Willem Dafoe a bigger role now. 
Have it be fuck it. Finding Gill. Finding Gill. Let's do Finding Gill. Finding Gill. Because they set up an arc in the first movie that he is going to get those guys out to the ocean, and they have still not got there. (laughs) They still not tasted that ocean. So just a whole movie about him escaping would be brilliant. I'm surprised they haven't done more with those characters, even in some kind of like. You know, like when they do the Toy Story kind of shorts yeah. and stuff like the that. The shorts? Like, yeah, like a mm. collection of shorts or some kind of like, do you know what I mean? Like 10-minute yeah. bit parts, like a series that they get and stuff like that. Like they, they do. They mate, do. mate, mate, here's my pitch. I know, my, my story brain is on now. Here's my pitch. <laughs> the, the, the name oh, of the short, the name of the short is Now What? And it's just 15 minutes of absolute hijinks yeah. of them escaping different things and then getting <laughs> captured by other things and constantly asking now what but it has to end with them finally tasting that ocean god you, you need to pull every animation string that you have to get this back <laughs> do you know what i th- you've now given my life purpose now i know what i'm supposed to do my yes. bucket list do you know it's funny i do yes. have a friend who we, we, was- we know we, we know what you'll be doing on the picket line david you'll just be looking out for people who work at pixar <laughs> hey guys uh, hey i know you're not working I right now I know you're not working right now, but great idea. I'll be like, hey, you should pay your animators and your writers more. But also, have you heard of my Finding Nemo pitch? (laughs) No, um, it it is kind of funny. A production coordinator on the first animated feature I ever worked on is now a producer at Pixar uh, working on Inside Out 2. She's amazing. Magdiale Duhamel, absolutely amazing Latinx producer talent and one of the kindest, most awesome people I've met in this industry. And so I do know someone at Pixar, which is kind of crazy. But right now I'm very happy in Netflix animation. But <laughs> it is kind of nice to know that I know a few people there and whatever. Like <laughs> if I ever get uh, in another conversation with her, I'm just going to be like, okay, now what? Go. When we hit season 15 of this show, we'll be bringing you back on for now what? was a very special a very special episode you heard it here first defoe exclusive we're gonna manifest everyone (laughs) exclusive my dear to friends and listeners that it will be all coming full circle very very soon i certainly think on that note as well as we i suppose start looking to wrap up although i suppose before we do wrap up actually i try to find a definitive answer Mm. a a definitive answer to this online Um, (laughs) you you know petros i'll shoehorn those dads in wherever i can (laughs) they have that running joke of like marlin not being a funny clownfish, and then he finally tells a joke at the end do we know what that joke was the mollusk turns to the sea cucumber and says with fronds like these who needs anemones I think that's like the in joke. the ocean that killed. Yeah, no, indeed. Like, um, <laughs> I guess it had to be there. <laughs> but also, yeah, uh, be there, interesting mate. factoid on the DVD extras: there is a a list of like basically a reel of other punchlines that Albert Brooks recorded oh, off the cuff in the sound room. So he he did a bunch of really funny fish punchlines to jokes that don't even have beginnings. And they're actually really <laughs> hilarious. Apparently he had the Pixar people in stitches for like a whole hour just improvising stupid jokes to do with oh. fish. I think one of them is like, this meal tastes like cup. I think is one of his one of his punchlines. <laughs> it's like that, that's, it, it, that's what you get when you hire Albert Bricks, man. <laughs> if we didn't have it in Monsters Inc., we would have had like a bloopers reel kind of like Seinfeld esque, like just Marlon doing stand up, right? <laughs> that would have been bit, incredible. Bit the credits <laughs> would have been funny if you ever wanted to catch up to those characters. Marlon just having a terrible, terrible career as a stand up. 
just absolutely <laughs> just just dying on stage over and over again in the deep blue sea doing the jokes you used to get on a penguin do you know what I mean like uh oh, like, <laughs> do the anemone joke <laughs> you peaked at the anemone anyway <laughs> those are the spin-offs now what a marlin's burgeoning comedy career you heard it here first it's coming season 15 of getting to fogu we'll be covering all of the adventures of the tank gang <laughs> and beyond as they venture into their new pursuits. I love that you're creating you're creating a career expectation that is now going to cause me to implode <laughs> emotionally <laughs> and mentally. <laughs> Look, we're not trying to make anyone explode here, but also do it, David. <laughs> do it. <laughs> I think we're, you have now created a legitimate the fuck in me right now the <laughs> <laughs> friends don't the fuck each other over you're making me feel like defraud right now <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do here baby david i got a qu- i got a question for you. i got a question for everyone i know it's hard in an animated movie but willem as we said in our kind of chat at the beginning he has a, a elastic like face hmm. does he does he do the face in this film do, do we imagine in the booth he's he's pulling all types of wild faces we'll, we'll throw it to you down or i feel like he may have done you know what i'm gonna say i'm gonna say no to face on this one because it's it is a very slender long moorish idol mm. so you get that sort of the fishes have snouts i don't know what you would call it the little fish nut and the fish teeth mm. in terms of just looking at gill as a character animated i don't think there's a face but for keeping up appearances, I'm going to say that he probably did it in the recording. But I'm going to say, not to differ with you, sir, but I'm, go- I'm, I'm going to say yes, that he does make the face, but only in so much as. So it's not the same as his other roles, which is like, if you look at any actor in a voice recording booth, in order to play to the back of the cinema, voice actors have to project a lot more than they do when they've got a camera shoved right in their face. So even to do a subtle performance, you have to be able to project an awful lot more. So I, I guarantee he's probably made the face in the booth. But I would say beyond that, just speaking as an animation person, it's less that he does the face, but more that all animation is pushed in performances. So the animation, so it's not that Defoe does the Defoe face, it's that Gill and all other animations do the Defoe face. Basically, basically, he is a cartoon character in real life. So, <laughs> so when you look at his performances, he is more extroverted than your average actor, which means he's on a par with cartoons. And so, like, it's it's it, Gil does do the face, but that's because every animated character probably does a Defoe in order to emote. You know, their eyes bug, their mouths get all like the, the bean shape. You know what I mean? Like incredibly flexible and warped. You know what I mean? Like so, so yeah, I'm I'm gonna say he makes the face. And Petros, the face. How can you follow the eloquence of of David Trumbull, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> yeah, all right. I reckon he, I reckon he's pulling all types of faces in that booth. And I reckon, as I said earlier, like you get a sense of Willem Dafoe through Gill, not just through the voice, mm. just through the look of him. Mm. So it's a weird. I'm now picturing a fish with actual Willem Dafoe's face transplanted onto it. And I'm I'm not, never going to sleep Oh my again. God, can you imagine, what is it, the pilot fish, the fish that has the pilot light on, like in the in the a real deep dark? Can you imagine the light of that imagine fish? Imagine that light came coming on into, and it was Coming Dafoe. out of the dark and it was Willem Dafoe. <laughs> oh, this is where we need AI. I know we've shit on it all episode, but this is where AI comes in. Nightmare fuel. It's going to be like that moment in Lost Highway where Bill Pullman sees that, that weird guy's face on Patricia Arquette. 
<laughs> My God, I would never sleep again. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. The fish. Mm. Terrifying the fish. May we all sleep soundly tonight with that image locked in our brains. Yes, we give you that gift, all, all you pod listeners. So as we talk about, you know, our final impressions on this movie as we start wrapping things up, the question we always end as a little round table situation. Mm. And, we'll, you know, we'll throw it to yourself, your good self first, David. The ultimate rating of you for this film, Finding Nemo, the friend or the foe? I think my answer's probably not going to be a shock to anyone. Absolutely the best friend it's 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 pixar's best in my opinion there are other pixar movies that are maybe deeper or more groundbreaking and it's really a murderer's row of films in their canon even recently i think a lot of them that are considered part of their down period are, are still excellent in many ways and i think it's a testament to how much of a of a reputation pixar has that they now are kind of competing against themselves and sort of failing because they've set the bar so incredibly high in this in this opening run the thing about Finding Nemo is that like, I can, un- I can appreciate that other animated movies may be better or other Pixar movies may be better, but this one just has me emotionally. I'm so invested in those characters and that specific plot, this first movie where it's elegant, it's, it's streamlined, it's got no fat on it, it's just wall-to-wall, great sequences. It's got a really clear linear narrative with a very clear need for the character, a very clear motivation and, and a beautiful message. But also it's a movie that it's one of the main reasons I wanted to go into the animation business. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to work at Pixar for the longest time. But more than that, I mean, me and Petros always like to talk about like <laughs> how we have grown as, as, as men over the course of our pop culture diet. And Finding Nemo ended up being part of my life in more unexpected ways beyond my love of it and my work in animation. So I mentioned that Dana and I have... T- two kids and one of them absolutely loved Dory. And one thing that I didn't realize at the beginning when we were first uh, getting to know each other and like, you know, you're this new guy coming into a family and basically, you know, uh, Xander, the younger brother, like he was already 100% in the back for me because he just, you know, he was younger and 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 we had a great time. We, we made each other laugh and stuff. But Talzi was just a, like a harder nut to crack as the, as, as the eldest. One of the things that I didn't realize really at the time when we first started this whole thing going was just the, how much she loved Finding Nemo. She was one of those people who could just quote lots of Pixar movies from her childhood. And like, it's funny because it's like she could do verbatim, like all of the Barbie lines from Toy Story 2, like at the end, which is like, bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. Like she could do, <laughs> she could do incredible renditions of all of those things. And so Talzi is an incredible person, wonderful kid. I, I love her to death, but, but I can remember very vividly, like a sea change, literally pun intended, a sea change in our relationship was when we both realized that we could quote every line in Finding Nemo. And so I, th- I think I was in a car, we were talking about something that a friend of hers father did. And I said something like, that's one dedicated father from that montage. I just said it like offhand. I didn't even realize I was plucking it from Finding Nemo. <laughs> and she just like, her, her head just like, sl- like zoomed around to be like, that was Finding Nemo. And then she, we just ended up for like <laughs> the whole car journey, just throwing Dory lines back and forth together and stuff like that. And it was a real bonding thing that was like, I, I can remember that we, we had a lot of, uh, you know, ups and downs when you're first starting a relationship and, and getting to know people and, and forging closer bonds. But that really was a moment where I felt like she looked at me and was like, okay, he can stay. You know what I mean? Like the love of art kind of forged some common ground between us. And so it's beautiful. And and like, I found that I, I quote 
I quote Finding Nemo without even knowing it, just like in my everyday life. It, that's how much it's permeated my my existence. So I, like I, I I have a soda stream in my in my downstairs by my studio where I, I can make bubbly water. It's like carbonated water. And every time I press the button and the bubbles come on, without knowing it, I just go bubbles, the bubbles, the bubbles, the bubbles, the bubbles, bubbles. <laughs> like that. I, I, <laughs> my bubbles. Like that. It's like I for some reason Stephen Root as this character who's so one note has just stuck in my head every time I, I get myself a soda stream it's just a movie that feels less like a movie and more like just a part of my life and story so i just got to thank you guys for allowing me to come on this podcast and just like wax lyrical about something because it's almost like i can't even give it a rating i think it would be like uh, unfair to do so it's just a, a piece of cinema that forged a huge part of my relationship to the medium that I love and, and the job that I have. So, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure talking about it. So thank you so much. And yeah, it's absolutely different. And it's been good to talk about it with other different Amazing. And for you, Petros, the friend or the foe? Oh, it's the friend all the way, baby. It's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a the friend I will visit sparingly just because my heart can't quite take it. <laughs> But I look forward to kind of sharing it with my son as he as we get older and eventually receiving a phone call that will be like, Dad, I understood why you cried so much while she watched it. <laughs> as, as an adult, maybe with children of his own or, or, or just kind of at a kind of emotional maturity to understand like, oh, that's why, that's why you teared up every time. Yeah, so, yeah. Big, big old, big old, big old de friend for me. That's two de friends, and I think I've got to make it a three for three on the de friends. I mean, we talk about it a lot on this episode. It's you know the hot streak of Pixar, and I think this will always have a place on the Rushmore of Pixar movies as well. It just hits so many notes. It looks beautiful. It's a great cast, and it's a persisting and pertaining message that I think it will extend to beyond our lifetimes. And I think that's what Disney does very well. There, they have films with these narratives and messages that can be passed down and shared through generations and you know it makes me feel like more of a father to my dog and my cat as well so i know they can't say the words that they'd ever hate me but they can bark and hiss in a way that i don't quite like the, the cut of their jibs which <laughs> hopefully never happens but no, it's, it's fantastic at the time of recording it's like 20 years old as well yeah. and that we can still talk about with such reverence and positivity and that there's still so much to discuss even now still so unbelievably fresh Still so unbelievably fresh, like it whole absolutely holds up. Um, we said other Pixar movies, maybe in terms of story or the way they look, maybe not as much, but it's it's a gold standard animated mm. movie. Mm. And and I cannot stress it enough, it has Willem Dafoe in it. What more do you need, baby? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that is three three of the the, the utmost respectful friends on a yes. on finding Nemo there so I think it's a good job all round Pixar pat yourselves on the back you you, you gave the world a good and we thank you for that as well yeah, yeah I think it's probably time to start wrapping up this week's episode on finding Nemo obviously David Trumbull thank you so much for taking the time I feel much wiser for all of this because you know where once I was I was a Pixar boy I feel like I've let this chat a Pixar man <laughs> 
all the info inside as well. But of course, and you didn't even need a hug from John Lasseter to get there. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> you had your eyes yeah. opened without it. <laughs> Sometimes physical distance is just what you need to grow as a person. You know. But with that said, and again, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, where can the listeners find you on the interweb socials and all that good business? Uh, you can find me at drumble on Twitter, and I I don't tweet anywhere near as much as I used to. Every now and again, I'll post some stuff when something like, for instance, the last movie I worked on. Uh, Wendell and Wild came out last year and so I posted a lot of behind the scenes boards about that you can find me on Instagram at David W. Trumbull mostly I just talk about animation to anyone who'll listen and it's very much without reason or rhyme I'm not someone who needs to live online in fact the less I live online the happier I am but uh, but I do love talking about animation and films with like-minded people so that's where I am so I've been Daryl Edge I've been Petros Batsilovus and we've been getting to foe you and there we have it. Episode 9 is done. The fish tank has been cleaned out. We have escaped in our little plastic bags and we've rolled out <laughs> to the ocean and we are bobbing up and down wondering what's coming next. But yeah, delightful finding Nemo. What a fun one to revisit. That Pixar magic. It's, it's something in the water. It's something in the water that they're doing over there. Yeah, and this may give away when we recorded this, but we get into some aspects of the way things are going on Hollywood. And hopefully by the time you're listening to this, they've been they've been resolved because we, we got into, obviously, the advent of AI and the, the, the ongoing, at mm-hmm. the time of recording, writer's strike. And who knows who's on strike now or if it's all ended. Um, but yeah, if, if it's still going on, solidarity with your brothers. Solidarity with our brothers, solidarity with our sisters. We support you, baby. We're here in our own little uh, Defoe way. But with that all said, as we try to dry ourselves off from the ocean and all the things it contains, it's time to look ahead to the final episode of season one, episode 10 coming up next week. And oh boy, oh baby, Petros. What the hell do we have coming up next week? Well, once you've been in the ocean, you might want to dry out on dry land and go to a secluded cabin in the woods. And that's exactly what we will be doing as we look at Lars von Trier's 2009 absolute mind-bending psychological horror Body horror, what the hell is going on, movie? Antichrist, where we will be joined by Rebecca McCallum of the Talking Hitchcock podcast to really get into every blow from that film. Oh boy. Oh boy, indeed. What what a twofer for you, finding Nemo that Antichrist, you lucky, lucky people, you. So <laughs> we will obviously catch you next week. Before we sign off here, though, thank you again, as ever, to Matt for his tremendous editing work on the podcast and all the episodes so far. Sailing this ship, Captain, get across all of the oceans while we all just we are just the humble fish that hope to be caught in his net, in his prowess. What a what a fisherman, what a podcasting fisherman you are. I get Matt is very much keeping our tank clean. When we when we hand this podcast to Matt, 
it is an absolute state. When we we, <laughs> we, we, we had an absolute grimy, and Matt is the kind of thingy 5,000 that the dentist installs. He, he's there scanning, scanning for all of the muck, and he gets rid of it. Well, you know, digital muck, as in as in the audio quality. Not not He can't get rid of uh, all, of, all of the mucky-mucky stuff that we say, otherwise this podcast would be about five minutes long. <laughs> He's making sure there's no pebbles in the filter of this podcast, and we bless him for it. But, as we always do, listener, if you've enjoyed the episode, and we bloody hope you have, we would love to hear from you. What do you think of Finding Nemo? Reach out, touch us, get in touch with the podcast. Petros, you told them at the top, let's tell them one more time. Where can they find us? Yeah, you've had you've had a conversation in between that. So reach us out on Twitter and Instagram at DefoeUPod or drop us an email like you're booking a dentist appointment. You know, you can do it online these days and you can drop us an email on the lovely email address that is DefoeUPod at gmail.com. And whilst you're there, Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you're listening to this right now. Share our posts on all the socials. Tell your friends. Tell people in the ocean. Tell your fish. Spread it far and wide. We want to see if we can be in the the charts in, in Australia. Hey to our Australian pals. How you doing? Hope you're having a bonza day. Get in touch. Ocean men, ocean women, get involved. We want you all land-based or seafaring. But with that all said, it's time to wrap up here once and for all as our attention now turns to the season one finale, Antichrist, and we've got a banger in store for you. So we will catch you next week as we continue on the folk emotion train to look at all the highs, all the lows, all things Willem Dafoe right here in this dedicated Dafoe podcast known as Getting Dafoe You. So until then, until then, ta-ta for now. Getting Dafoe You, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. Getting to foe you will start with heaven's gate And watch them all till the present day